Muggy and at times stormy, the Cow Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and our co-host here this week. I am very happy to be joined by the National Writer for Baseball America, and joining us from what I'm sure are luxurious accommodations in Riverside, California. It's Kyle Glazer. Kyle, how are you? Doing all right, Kevin. I think I'm your first host from SoCal. Is that right? I know you've had no, some Bay Area folks. You've had some other be. SoCal people. We got to look. There has to be someone else from SoCal. Okay, I know there's you, been some Bay Area, a lot in New York, but I, I yeah. can't remember if you had another one. I we don't, we'll have to look through the the Chin Music history. We need a Chin Music like fan site where they track every episode and all of our co-hosts and guests and musical guests, and that way we could have a and a database fully searchable. If anyone wants to do that, let me know, and um, and then we'd know. But I don't think you're the first SoCal dude, and you're gonna drop a dude. You've promised me already. You'll say dude at some point. Yeah, I can do that. I can I, I can let full SoCal Kyle come out. Like I said, professional Kyle tends to be very straight-laced. A lot of people, when they see me out of my professional element, they're kind of surprised. It's a lot of, you know, just surf shirts, board shorts, rainbow sandals, where when I'm at the ballpark, I'm very professional. Like, it's, it's I don't know. People seem surprised sometimes. I'm also, I guess I've been told I can be a little bit intense when I'm working. And it's kind of funny to me because when I'm not working, I'm like, just kind of hanging out. Like, I don't think of myself as a tense, uptight person, but I guess when I'm working and super focused, I come off that way. So I don't know. I'm, I'm still flabbergasted by the sandal comment. Yeah, rainbow sandals, the best stuff. Always. <sighs> you should not wear sandals, Kyle. What? It's a, gen- it's a general rule. Socks and sandals are a general rule, but I don't know. It's <laughs> what you wear. I mean, what do you do nah. when you go to the beach? It's rainbow sandals all the way, baby. I, I wear sneakers and take them off. Yeah, no. That, Not that that's, what the, that's what the tourists do. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be a tourist then. No, it's it's the just the general shoe rule. You need to wear shoes that you can either fight or run in, and samples <laughs> you can do both. Neither. I have never heard that general shoe rule. For me, it's about what's comfortable. If I'm working out, I'm wearing workout shoes. If I'm going to work, I'm wearing work shoes. When I'm at the beach, I'm wearing sandals. Do you surf? I do not. Uh, a lot of bodyboarding. You know, it's funny surfing. You grew up lot, down there. You're you're from SoCal. Yep, yep. Uh, I was born in Newport Beach, lived there the first nine years of my life. Then we moved to San Diego, was there the next nine until I went to uh, college at Arizona State. But yeah, uh, it's funny. So surfing, it's a lot of early morning lessons, you know, 6 a.m. on weekends. And I was always playing baseball or hockey or soccer. So I had all these other sports with weekend tournaments I was always going to. I never really had the time to take surf lessons. It's one of the things on my bucket list. I haven't gotten around to it. But when I go, I normally just kind of body surf and, and hang out and have a good time. You played hockey in Southern California? I did. So my dad... Did did you find enough people? Funny you mention that. So my dad (laughs) is from New York, and he grew up playing hockey. And, you know, the stereotype of, oh, dad's playing catch with their sons. That wasn't what me and my dad did. We had one of those plastic Milik nets in the driveway and practiced one-timers. That was our father-son bond. Nice. 
he uh, he wasn't much of a baseball guy. I kind of developed out on my own. Yeah, so no, there's some ice rinks uh, down in San Diego in Orange County. Uh, I played roller hockey at first, transitioned to ice. Uh, my high school actually did have a, a roller hockey team. I played ice as well, but I did play roller hockey for my high school. And yeah, we were... I don't know, team of like nine, 12 guys. We had to be, it really helped your endurance because the last three periods, you, uh, with, without yeah. really a full team, it, it took a lot out of you. But hey, it was a great workout, great exercise, and I, I always enjoyed it. So we'll talk about uh, all the latest stuff in baseball. Our special guest, if we can edit it properly, Kyle had some internet dropouts due to technical issues, thanks Spectrum, um, is Dennis Lynn of The Athletic. Uh, well timed as we talk about uh, Wednesday night's insanity against the Dodgers, as well as just kind of the general fall of the Padres in the second half of the season. Uh, and then we'll get to your emails, moment of culture, all that good stuff. You're talking about baseball, Kyle? Oh, yeah, always. Let's start with last night. So last night, um, I mean, it was, already, it was already kind of the most compelling series on the schedule. Um, but the, the Dodgers and the Padres hooked up in the weirdest game of the year. There's no debating this one, um, especially in the age of the ghost runner to have that many half innings with no runs. Um, and every inning, it looked like someone would score. It felt like, I think there were, I didn't, I lost count, 73 rundowns between third base and home <laughs> in the last four innings. Um, a double intentional walks to force a pitcher to hit. Um, a, a, a rally by the Dodgers to score two. A two-run home run by Fernando Tatis to tie it. Um, AJ Pollock with another home run to kind of put the game away. Uh, I have been a, uh, not vocal, but I've certainly said in the past that I like the ghost runner rule. I think it makes for exciting baseball. I think it creates immediate stress. And I'm reconsidering that now because that was so much fun. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it at the major league level. Never have been. The journalist in me kind of likes it because, hey, you have to make deadline and this means a game actually is more likely to end in the 10th inning as opposed to you're going to 14 innings and filing a print version without the game being over, then a web version at 1230 in the morning and that's always annoying. But yeah, I, I would rather see a team go out and actually win the game. I, I think it was last year, I forget if it was Tyler Glasnow or one of the pitchers talked about, do you know how hard it is to get a runner to second base in the major leagues and then to just kind of give a freebie? Um, I get it under the current COVID reality at the All-Star Game. Uh, Commissioner Manfred laid out that realistically it's probably not going to continue on beyond this year, and I am A-OK with that. I would much rather see uh, an extra inning game played out traditionally as opposed to the runner on second rule. I was just always – what am I making? I, I thought it was good just because, like, you know, Extra innings are stress. Putting a runner on second adds to the stress, and I think and baseball is entertaining because it's a stress sport. It's about stress moments. And I thought and I thought it was better for that. I also, I, I don't know, more of a, I don't know. This maybe the front office person me thinking just player health, just like not killing your bullpen, and like you play a seventeen inning game and and you're shot for four days. You know your bullpen's just shot for four or five days, and it can really kind of affect much longer than just the one game. But at the same time, like you know, I don't. Every, it was such a fun two hours, uh, you know, of the extra inning time, and, and Twitter was hilarious, and it was a good diet ice cream. Um, it was just a great time all around, and it made me go, yeah, let's not do this. Let's not do the ghost run anymore because this is just too much fun, and we don't have any games like this anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, when I think about one of the most fun games I was ever fortunate enough to cover, it was Game 5 of the 2017 World Series, that crazy mm-hmm. game that went back and forth and was uh, the longest game in World Series history to that point. I mean, at a certain point, it's it's kind of fun. So I, I'm totally okay with them going back to the traditional setup after this year. Obviously, I understand the concerns, but there's a small part of me that's like, well, that's why you should let your starting pitchers go seven so that you're a little covered for this as opposed to, oh, it's been five innings and the third time through the order is coming up and we have to pull them because we're nervous about that. I don't know. Part of me is like, hey, this is why you develop guys to be able to go six, seven, eight. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Do you want to hear my, my game five of the 2017 World Series story? Sure. Go ahead. So, um, so I, I was there, obviously, and, 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 I, and as was my wife. And um, obviously very stressful, right? Um, and we have our seats and, uh, and my wife uh, needs to use the restroom. And I say, oh, that's going to be a nightmare. Just come with me. I'll take you to the, to the offices and you can go there, right? And you have to worry about the 700-person line, right? And so we go to the offices, take care of business. And then we like just walking around, walk some stress off uh, and, and, and keep an eye on the game and just kind of walk around the stadium and get back to our seats just in time for the, the Yuli home run that got the team back in the game. And then I just remember, um, you know, an extra innings with, you know, Fisher on base and Bregman up. And I honestly thought at one point I was having a heart attack. <laughs> like I just had, like, I was like, I, I could, I could feel, I could literally feel like the, 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 the percussion of my heart in my chest. I was like, is this, I don't, I've never had a heart attack. Is this what a heart attack is? I think I'm at, this might be a heart attack. I don't know what this, this, I don't, I feel awful. This is horrible. I think this might be a heart And, um, but that's, I always just kind of remember how I feel, <laughs> how I felt during that game as opposed to the game itself in a lot of ways. So you're telling me you want to feel that all the time? No. Um, I do not. No. <laughs> just with no. The extra inning games. Yeah. No, yeah. that was. That was just an incredible game. I just the back and forth that I was in the uh, the auxiliary press box out in center field, out by Torchy's Tacos, very yep. very far out there. Um, but yeah, that was when I think about my career and all the games I've covered. That was the most exciting game I think I've ever been fortunate to be at. I mean, I was just pulled up my game story. You know, five hours, seventeen minutes, just the back and forth. Everything was insane. But I can understand how being a person involved with one of those two teams, you felt like you were having a heart attack because it was just absolute insanity and so many momentum swings and so many lead changes. It was truly crazy. Um, we're, we'll, we'll, we've already done the interview with Dennis Wilton. Obviously, we'll talk to him a little bit more about this, but um, Padres are in trouble, man. Like, this is... Yeah. Nothing's going in the right direction. Um, their, their playoff chances are right now going by the fan graph odds in the 20s. Um I guess my do you think expectations were too high? Like the Padres feel to me like this team that always gets written about as winning the off season and oh look at all the stuff the Padres did, but the results really haven't been there yet. You know, I they they haven't won a playoff game yet. They they got to the playoffs last year and got swept out. Um they actually they beat the Cardinals in the wild card series. Oh, you're right. Yes, they you're right. They won the wild card games. They have won a playoff game. I don't know if wild card games count still. <laughs> do you know uh, what, I, let me tell you my let me tell you my theory on this and and okay. I learned this this was in 2015. Um, the Astros went to the wild card game in New York, and they and I, you know, went to the traveling secretary guy. I said, do, you know, do I need a playoff credential? And he said, no, wild card games are no, are regular season credentials. And so that's my great theory that wild card games are not playoff games. So. 
Yeah, I need to. I think our regular BBWA cards get us into the wild card game. Yeah, I'm not it's sure not a playoff game because I always get my my universal postseason credential and just use that the whole way through. So I haven't actually done that, but I do think the regular BBWA card gets you into the wild card. See, game. in terms of credential for both press and people who work in baseball, regular season credentials work in wild card games. This is my theory that it's not really a playoff game. But anyway, so the, so the Padres have won one playoff game at the most and, and then got swept out. And otherwise, it's been fourth and fifth place finishes. Right now, they're in third. And I mean, they're certainly going to finish the, at the worst third. But, you know, is are the Padres more hyped than results at this point? So I, I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned winning the offseason. Uh, that 2015 season was actually my first year as a beat writer. I was the Padres beat writer for the Riverside Press Enterprise. And... That team was overly hyped. It was a team that was extremely right-handed, and for all their off-season acquisitions, they didn't really fit. They still they ran out Will Myers as their opening day center fielder and had Alexi Amarista as their starting shortstop. They had no pitching depth, starting pitching depth, because they traded pretty much all of it away. They didn't have a backup catcher when Tim Fedorovich got hurt, and then they compounded all their issues by firing Bud Black in the middle of the season, which remains one of the most foolish moves I've ever seen a team make in season, uh, being in the clubhouse that year, understanding the difference between Bud Black and Pat Murphy, who's a great baseball mind and everyone knows and loves and respects. Mm-hmm. Um, but by his own admission, I have a Q&A with him I did a few years later, he wasn't ready for it. He you know, was managing a triple A pass, so he didn't know the team because he'd been in minor league spring training that year. The big mm-hmm. leaguers didn't know him. It was just, that was a decision that really torpedoed that season in addition to their roster flaws. I do think this year is different because I actually think they did build a really complete, good, solid team. It felt like this team was really good and really real in the first three months of the year. And truthfully, I think they were. I just think they got hit by injuries. The Potters have lost more games to injury than any other team in the majors and then failed to go get the desperately needed starting pitching at the deadline. I mean, if you look at what they've been doing recently, you Darvish is scheduled to come off the IL today, I believe, but they've been running out essentially two starting pitchers, Joe Musgrove and Blake Snell, then having right. to use three bullpen days because Ryan Weathers is not really capable of starting and going deep right now. I mean, I don't care who you are over these past two weeks. If you're essentially running out two actual starters and then following up with three bullpen days, you're not going to win many games. Their ERA is over five during this stretch This uh, where they've lost 11 of 13. It's 5.51. It's not really hard to see why. They had to get a starter at the deadline. They talked about exorbitant prices, but you look at what the Mariners give up for Tyler Anderson, the Padres couldn't match that easily. I mean, they just they right. had to get something. And the fact that they did it. some innings. Right. They, they had to get something. And the, even, you know, Andrew Heaney, who isn't very good, but you look at what the Yankees gave up for him. The Padres There's someone matched, who can make the start. Exactly. The Padres could have matched that. So that failure right there is why they are where they are now. I don't think this was a fundamentally flawed team coming into the year, but they had to do something at the deadline and they didn't do it. And we're seeing the results. Do you think they just kind of put all of their eggs in the Max Scherzer basket and then obviously the Dodgers swooped in at the end and, and, and kind of uh, picked their pocket? That's part of it, but they also used some of their trade capital earlier. They went out and got Adam Frazier a couple days mm-hmm. before the deadline, mm-hmm. and while that turned out to be a timely acquisition because Tatis' shoulder got hurt a few days later and then it ended up working out, Tucapito Marcano was someone a lot of teams had interest in. Jack Sawinski was a really interesting prospect. Yeah, for sure. Um, These are guys that 
they could have used to go get a starting pitcher. But by the time the deadline came around, they'd sent them off for Adam Frazier. And Frazier's a good player, but he's not what the Padres needed most. They needed a starting pitcher. So using trade capital to go get him just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And then it set them back when the actual deadline day came and they had to get a starting pitcher and couldn't do it. Um, I, I want to stick in, in California for a second and um, and talk about the story that, that you know was, was big this week, which is the, the story of, of the Angels, um, Tyler Skaggs, and, and drug use. And, and um, you know, federal prosecutors kind of, of showed their cards this week um and say that that eric k uh was kind of running a dug distribution operation if anything uh among the angels um it sounds like up to five players i I don't know if their current or former players are prepared to testify that they got oxycodone from k um that k coordinated a supply of narcotics from from different uh drug dealers and then sometimes use gags himself as a middleman for distribution um you know, this story is uh, a couple of years old now in terms of, of you know, it's, it's been a little more than two years since, since Skaggs passed away due to um, due to an overdose of, of, you know, he had oxy, he had alcohol, he had fentanyl in his system, which is extremely dangerous and, and at times um, cut into a lot of, of illegally acquired drugs. And, and it's one of those things that just a little bit can really kill you. And, and um, this story is not going to get better. And I feel like um, we, we might just be scraping the surface of what might end up being a pretty massive scandal at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we have to let the legal process play out. I think, obviously, there, there's a lot of things that have come out, but anytime you're talking about court cases, there's a lot of things that don't come out until the trial actually begins. Um, it's currently scheduled to begin October 4th. It's been delayed three times, so... Theoretically, uh, beginning in October, uh, things some an- some questions will start to be answered. But yes, this is not going to be something that is over quickly. Um, trials take a long time. Investigations take a long time. As you mentioned, you know, Skaggs died in t- summer of 2019. The trial's just now set to begin October 2021. You know, I, I don't want to sit here and say what's going to happen because we don't know what's going to happen. But everything that's come out so far from the motions that have been filed, uh, the partial, you know, documents that have been obtained and discussed. Um, yeah. It's a pretty it's, damning text messages. It, yeah. It, it's not good. N- none of this is good. And honestly, I'm just kind of watching and, and it, you just kind of shake your head at all of it because at the end of the day, a, a 27 year old in the prime of his life is dead left behind a, a young widow. His parents had to bury him. It's just awful. And heartbreaking and now we just have to see what happens but but this entire thing is just so in the 1980s there was um a pretty large cocaine problem in baseball um and and there was the 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 pirates were at you know at one point uh pirates player um was arrested and it you know when it all came out it looked like there was you know basically a cocaine distribution thing and within baseball um you know obviously it's it's you know we're in the 2020s and 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 you know opioids and prescription drugs are are a huge problem in this country and there's no reason to think that it's not spreading to baseball um it feels like we i mean I, you know again we don't know what's going to happen but there's the potential for you know some some real things coming out here that show that that like anything 
I think we all know football has a drug problem. Um, that you know, athletes are not any they're they're human beings like everyone else, and so any problem that's affecting society is going to affect them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sports are a microcosm. I think sometimes people assume that because these guys are just so physically gifted beyond what we can even comprehend that they're somehow immune to the same demons or anxieties or worries as the general population. And we just know that's not true. Um, yeah, there's there's no question that things are going to be uncovered here that are not going to be flattering for a lot of people um, already, you know, we've seen uh, the federal government, um, uh, excuse me, uh, prosecutors filed a motion saying the angels have not, we're asking the court to order the angels to uh, provide more information uh, to mm-hmm. comply with the subpoena that was filed on Monday. The team on Tuesday came back and filed a motion of their own opposing it, saying what they have produced is produ- protected by attorney client privilege. I mean, there's going to be a lot of back and forth. There's going to be mo- motions like this where you see that and you say, well, what are the angels hiding and what is happening with this? What more do federal prosecutors want? It's a lot of unanswered questions right now. And as they get answered, sadly, yeah, this, this is not something where you're going to be like, oh, everything ended up turning out okay. Like someone died and there are very real problems here and we're going to find out more. And, and it's just it's just not good. I know I keep repeating that, but I don't know how any other way to say it. It's just all of it. You just shake your head. Now, I mean, you know, you, you work for Baseball America right now and, and you know, you write on a national level and you do a lot of features, go to the ballpark a lot. Uh, but you you do have experience as a beat writer. Like you said, you were on the beat for the Padres for a while. Um, when you are a beat writer and, and you have a beat and a story like this happens that is not um, in any way baseball related. This is not baseball. This is about drug addiction and, and, and you know, tragically death. Um how do you do you suddenly say, Oh Christ, I now have to become an, an expert on, um, on the legal system, on the opioid problem. That's, that's destroying our country on, uh, you know, things that are not baseball related is how much of that is like, well, this is, this is, I hate to use this word again, you know, something horrible happened, but like how much of that is exciting? Cause it's a new thing and you, you can cover this. And how much is this like, I just wish I had baseball. You kind of just go into news reporter mode where it's, hey, I'm sticking to the facts, things that, you know, not not anything where you try and write or try and incorporate more. You stick to the facts of these are the documents that were filed. This is what so-and-so said about it. Here's the statistic from, you know, in this case, the CDC about opioid deaths in the U.S. Um, there are reporters out there who are excellent investigative reporters who have a lot of experience digging through court filings and are able to kind of unearth some things and you lean on them on your stuff. I was fortunate my paper, the Riverside Press Enterprise, well, I didn't have anything like this. We did have, and before I covered the Padres, um, I was on covering high schools and like a lot of young writers and we had a football player collapse and die on the field. And uh, it was not my story to write, but one of our other reporters, you know, the, the team of, okay, the news reporters came in, the people with experience and, and, Dealing with stuff like this, you really work as a team, um, mm-hmm. lean on the experts on your staff who, who have experience with this. And then when it's anything with your byline, you keep it very, very rote, very, very straightforward. Here's the facts and leave it at that. Um, let's let's talk about baseball for a second. And I, I noticed that this week and it's, it's kind of continued into into later in the week. But all of a sudden, things kind of turned on a dime and um, we're in a position where 
it really feels like the playoff races are down to six or seven teams in each league for the five playoff spots. Like it feels like a lot of teams have gone away. A lot of teams are pulling away. Um, you know, both centrals are feel done at this point with both the White Sox and the Brewers with nearly 10 game leads in their division. Um, Atlanta starting to pull away in the East partially because they're playing very well and, and partially because the Mets have collapsed and the Phillies are, are just kind of scuffling around at 500. Um, you know, Houston's lead over Oakland at this point is five games, which almost feels un, un, uncatchable at this point, the way Houston's playing. Um, it, it feels like September, which starts next week, is going to be more about jockeying for playoff position as opposed to making the playoffs themselves. I'm really interested to see the teams that are going to slide out of it. The Red Sox are sliding. The A's are sliding. The Padres are sliding. Seeing if any of them can kind of bounce back with a strong September. I, I think you're right. A lot of the playoff you know, positions feel kind of predetermined right now. Again, I don't see a scenario. The White Sox don't win the Central. The Astros winning the West. Uh, the Braves, the Brewers. We know the West and the National League is going to come down to the Giants and Dodgers. But there are some teams hanging around on the fringes. And, and really for me... Whether the Red Sox and A's, you know, right now the Red Sox are in playoff position. The A's are only a game and a half back of the wild card. Who is that second AL wild card? Is it them? I'm looking at the Blue Jays as a team that could surge. That to me is going to be most interesting. But in terms of playoff position, the one thing I'm looking at is the White Sox. They were my preseason pick to represent the AL in the World Series. They're 31 and 32 away from home. They have the worst road record of any team that currently leads their division. And right now, they've, they've kind of fallen out of the race for home field advantage. They have the fourth best record in the American League right now. So seeing if they can kind of get back into that, hey, we're jockeying with the race, the Astros, for home field in the American League, that's actually going to be one of the interesting subplots to me. They're going to win the Central, but given their road struggles, where they finish is going to be really, really key, I think. Yeah, and we'd be remiss not to talk about the, the Cincinnati Reds as well, who have, have surged and... and um... I thought, you know, very quietly and, and in a very unexciting way, um, they fixed their big problem, which was the bullpen. Um, you know, they didn't acquire Craig Kimbrell or some sort of shutdown closer, but they got much needed bodies, just bullpen depth guys you can maybe count on to get outs. Um, and I think it's really helped turn their season around. The Luis Sessa-Justin Wilson trade was one of the strangest things I've seen. The Yankees just giving them to the Reds for a player to be named later. We'll yeah, they're crunched. They're crunched beyond crunched. And Sess and Wilson have been really, really good for them. Uh, the Michael Gibbons trade has obviously paid off very well early on. One guy that I think we have to mention, kind of the unsung hero, Kyle Farmer. I mean, the dude has stepped in and played a pretty damn good shortstop. After it's a great second We half. had no idea who their shortstop was going to be. He's hit since July 1st. He's hit 327, 371, 527. The guy mm. has an 898 OPS while playing an above average everyday shortstop since July 1st. Like, no one saw that coming. And honestly, that stabilized the Reds as much as anything. I mean, when Eugenio Suarez was playing short this year, it was cover your eyes. This is as, <laughs> this was every bit as ugly as you thought it was going to be. And they didn't go out and acquire anyone. And Kyle Farmer has stepped up and just. Man, I still look at something like Kyle Farmer has an 898 OPS while playing a good defensive shortstop, but yeah, I mean, it's all star level. Give him props. I mean, geez. And so you solidify that. The bullpen, Luis Castillo has been much better. Things were looking kind of scary there earlier in the year, but he sorted that out. 
I mean, you talk about them, and they've now jumped the Potters for that second and a wild card spot. Talk about two teams going in opposite directions. The Potters, it feels like nothing is going right. They're not getting what they need out of their starting pitching. The bullpen has been heavily used. We're starting to see the effects of that. And they have some lineup spots guys just aren't producing, whereas the Reds, it's the exact opposite. And that's frankly why we're seeing them go in opposite directions. Um, you know, I, I know that you, you go to a lot of big league games, but you know, with where you are, you go to a lot of uh, what used to be the California League. I'm still going to call it that. Uh, California League games. And, um, you know, you've been hanging out there and, and you've been, you know, I know, you know, we've talked offline, you, you've been thinking about and talking to people within the game about, you know, something we covered before the, the season started, which is all of the rule change experiments um, that are taking place in, in all the various leagues and some of the more drastic experiments that are taking place in some of the independent leagues that minor leagues or that Major League Baseball is an arrangement with. Um, what do you think as far as, you know, what are the, how many of those are going to stick? And I think more importantly, um, you know, all of these rule changes are being experimented with for a reason, which is do we need to think about implementing them at the highest level in the big leagues? Um, and, and do you see a path where any of these rule changes, uh, you know, be it the, the step-off rule or the pick-off throw rule or the pitch clock or, you know, anything they're doing, and even like crazy shit and like they're doing the Atlantic where they're moving the mound back, do you see any of these things um, graduating to the major league level? Pitch clocks are coming. The pitch clocks are going to happen. Um, I was out at the Cal League. I'm going to call it the Cal League too. By the way, the whole low A West thing—it's the dumbest thing ever. They're all—it's it's just—it felt like it was just an afterthought, and they—they they just called them that for the sake of calling them that now, and then just left them that way. Yeah, it's just—it's so dumb. They need to go back to what it was before. They're, it's pointless and it's dumb. Um, but being at some of these games, a lot of Major League Baseball officials were at a couple of the games I was at last week in the Cal League. And just talking to them, and I talked to some others throughout the year, but, but seeing their reactions, when I say some officials, I mean some, some big guys, you know, high-level guys, guys I was surprised to see sitting in a low-A game. Um, they're all in on the pitch clocks. And what's been interesting to me is a lot of players, both ex-major leaguers and guys who are actually now in the minors, are saying, they're in on it as well because they see the difference in pace. They see the difference in the time of game and the tempo. It's There's mm-hmm. been a, quite a few games now. Earlier in the year, we weren't seeing it because the level of play was so sloppy. It was just errors left and right. But now that yeah, it took things a while have, for the guys to get to shake the rust off. Yeah, but now that plays are being made like they should and things have evened up, you know, the two Cali games I was at last week in Ranch Cucamonga were, I think, 240 and 230. And it was just a really good pace and, and everyone involved was really, really happy with them. I really think pitch clocks are coming. We saw them do it at AAA a few years ago when I was out in North Carolina at Durham. The first year was rocky. There were definitely some times where, you know, guys not in the box, the umpire calls a strike on them. And then the guy has a big loud fight with the umpire or the pitcher yeah, yeah, yeah. doesn't do, you know, isn't where he needs to be at 15 seconds, a ball's called and then he's chirping at the umpire and the manager comes out. It's a whole big hullabaloo. But by the second year of it, we sort of didn't see that anymore. The first year was rocky, but by the second year, guys just got used to it. And it actually they found their rhythm, yeah. It actually helped. I mean, I'm, I'm a baseball purist in a lot of ways. I'm on the younger side age-wise, but I'm a little bit of an old soul at heart when it comes to baseball. And even, even I'm like, yeah, after seeing the pitch clock for multiple years now at multiple levels of the minors, and in, I just, I'm on board, and it seems like MLB officials are on board. Obviously, the players probably need to get on board too, but... 
what's been interesting to me is it seems like more and more players are getting on board and mm. I, I think pitch clocks are coming what year I don't know but to me that's the one that I, I feel very confident saying yeah they're gonna happen and, and do you think anything else has a chance you know they're looking at the pickoff rules they've that's made stealing bases almost too easy in the yeah for sure it, 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 they've really taken off haven't they yeah we've seen we've seen the stolen base levels at the lowest levels of the minors just become again it, it's almost some of it's kind of cheap. Not that it's ever cheap. You still have to be fast and get a good lead and, and beat a good throw. But, um, I, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen. Really, all this is just about pace of play and action. And the truth is, if you just institute the pitch clock, that alone is going to improve pace of play so much. I, right. And for a league that just seems to be, like, obsessed with, with literally seconds here and seconds there, this is this is many minutes. Exactly. And I don't think it's unjustified. If you go back and look, the average time of a nine-inning game this year is three hours and nine minutes. That's the longest in Major League history. The number keeps going up every single year. I mean, if you only go back even to 2010, it was 250. It was almost 20 minutes shorter. You know, We're not talking about the 1970s here. 2003, it was 246. I mean, I think getting it back into that 230, 240 range probably is best for the long-term health of the game. And I think pitch clocks alone, honestly, will do the trick. And they might not need to do any of the other stuff. The other stuff to me is gimmicky. Pitch clocks, I think, alone will solve a lot of the issues. Do you think we're heading towards robot umps at home plate? I think at some point, yes, the technology still needs to be worked out. Right. I don't think it's – I think it's happening. I don't think it's happening as nearly as soon as people think. So we saw in the low A Southeast this year, a.k.a. the Florida State League, I'm just going to call it the FSL, they put the automatic ball strike system in and they had to change it in the middle of the season because they mm-hmm. realized for low A pitchers who really struggled to throw strikes, it just wasn't a big enough zone. So they changed where they were measuring the, where the pitch crosses the plate. There's still a lot of things that are going to be worked out. We've seen it in the Arizona Fall League. There's some calls that just like, man, really? Um, yeah. I think it is coming, but to me, the pitch clocks, that's going to happen very soon or as soon as possible. There's going to be a lot more work needed to get the ABS, the automated ball strike system, right before I think we see it in Major League Baseball. Um, but as far as everything else, I mean, and they tried so many things all over the place. Like I, the the, the biggest kind of controversy has been the, the, the concept of, of moving the mound back. Um, there's been some good pieces even this week of how, you know, they almost had an outright, they almost had a work stoppage in the Atlantic League because players didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, and understandably so because they're, now they're playing a game and doing something that is not what's happening at the highest level. So, like, are the, how, how are you able to evaluate them and how are you they able to get better if they're playing a different game? Um, that always felt like the most, uh, radical idea and I, I I understand the concept of it and you move the mound back and you give, give guys a better chance to hit when everyone's throwing 98 but um, this isn't going to happen no I I will be shocked if we ever see it happening and by the way I, I think that's the right way to go about it there's way too much risk for pitcher injuries here especially at a time when they want starters to pitch deeper into games it's just it's not gonna it's not gonna help anything. I, I really think, and maybe this is, you know, 
a little much saying I think the pitch clock will solve everything, but I think it'll solve more than people think. Well, I think pitchers having to get back and throw quicker, they're not going to be able to kind of, I don't know, ramp up as much. They're going to have to make their pitches quicker. I just, mm-hmm. I think it will mm-hmm. help offense. I think, I think it will help everything. We'll see shorter games. We'll see cleaner games. We'll see more balls in play. I really do think that it will be something that makes such a big difference that a lot of the other things we've seen, some of the anti-shifting rules they're trying out, you know, the idea of moving the mound back, I just think they're going to be unnecessary. What do you think this could happen as far as the pitch clock? Like how soon do you think we could see this pitch clock implemented into major leagues? Because I agree with you. I think that I, I'm a fan of the pitch clock and I think it's great. And I think it would be, you know, for a league that does all this stuff, absolutely obsessed with, with pace of play that have little to no effect. Um, like this is a significant effect and it makes the game much snappier. Like, like how soon do you think we could see this in the big leagues? Based on the excitement that I was seeing from the MLB officials, I think they're going to push for it hard in the upcoming CBA negotiations. I would not be surprised if we see it in place for the 2022 season, or maybe they do something where they, you know, phase it in some form mm-hmm. or fashion. I, I think this is coming. I think it's coming soon. And, it might be a little rocky the first year, but I think once people see it in action, I think they'll actually be surprised how much you almost don't even notice it at a certain point. And it right. does help the game flow better. Um, again, I, I come from this. I was a purist, you know, again, young in age, but old soul at heart when it comes to baseball. And even I'm a hundred percent on board with this. Yeah, no, I am too. I think, I think it would absolutely be the, the best move to make. Um, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Dennis Lynn about last night's insane game with the Dodgers, as well as the general decline of the San Diego Padres. And right now you listen to a song from Rid of Mises to Corral.
Welcome back to the podcast, special guest time. Our special guest is the beat writer covering the San Diego Padres for a tiny little thing called The Athletic. And joining us just 10 minutes from Petco Park, I'm told, it's Dennis Lynn. Dennis, how are you? Hey, Kevin. I'm doing okay. I, I think I can say I'm doing better than the Padres, but that's probably <laughs> most people these days, unfortunately, for the team. But, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, I, I want to talk about the macro when it comes to the Padres, but I think we would need to start with the micro. Um, we're recording this on Thursday, and last night I stayed up till 3 in the morning watching what is, I think, unquestionably the strangest game of the Ghost Runner era as the Padres and Dodgers played 16 innings. Um, I want to start with, with not the game, but, but kind of your life. So the game ended at nearly three in the morning here central. Obviously it was more like one in the morning there. Um, but when that game ended, I turned off the television and went to bed. When the game ended, you still have to go do the zooms and have a deadline and stuff like that. Like what time did you walk out of the ballpark last night? I don't even remember. It was not that late, like not that much later after it ended. But I mean, that game was so long that <laughs> I think uh, everyone by that point had lost track of time. I know Blake Snell, we, we only did two quick zooms, really, um, understandably. After a loss like that, you know, the Padres wouldn't be uh, eager to uh, talk on a computer screen to, to a bunch of reporters, but. It was just funny that Blake Snell, I think, answered a couple questions and then he said, you know, basically I'm out and I, I'm tired and need to go to bed, <laughs> which uh, pretty much summed up the night. Dennis, I was trying to think about, since you've been on the beat, the longest games that you've covered, and I was on the beat with you for a little bit back in the day as well, and my first thought was that Mets game in 2015, uh, right before the trade deadline where they played, and then there was uh, a rain delay, and then Justin Upton came back and hit a home run to win it, and I think it was a Sunday getaway day, so everyone had to rearrange their flights. Was that the longest game you were part of? I mean, I feel like last night's has got to be up there as well. Yeah, I remember that game at City Field. I think uh, there was a rain delay, if I'm not mistaken, and Justin Upton uh, hit a home run in the rain, either, I think, before the game got delayed or something like that. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the longest game I covered was. I just – I wasn't there, but I keep thinking of the 22-inning game the Padres played against the Rockies a number of years back. And Remember our mutual friend Bill Center saying Tony Clark, who played first base for all 22 innings, was never the same after that. So, um, <laughs> you know, that comes to mind for a lot of people, I'm sure, after watching last night's game. But um, honestly, you know, this is the longest game I've ever covered as a, you know, Padres writer. So uh, I think none of us are eager to uh, relive too much of it. But understandably, people are talking about it. Um, you know, the, the Padres, if you go by our playoff odds, most of July were in the, the upper 90s in terms of a percentile of making the postseason. Um, some scuffles at the end of the month had them entering August at around 80%. And as we stand right now, they're in the 20s. Um, I think you know a lot of people point to a pitching staff that's been kind of beset by injuries, but it seems like there's, there's much more going on here. Did last night's loss feel like, I don't want to say the nail in the coffin, but at least a nail in, in terms of their playoff chances? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people are going to theorize that, you know, this is kind of, you know, not unofficially maybe if you look back in a few weeks, this could be where their season ended. 
um, because if I'm not, um, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is essentially, I know, I know Blake Snell through his longest game in his career, went seven to two thirds, 122 pitches, uh, but they still ended up throwing what effectively amounts to a bullpen game, which if you count that would have been their sixth bullpen game in 14 games, I think. So, I mean, they're, they're already running on fumes. Um, and to your point, yeah, there's definitely something missing with this team that was there early in the, the first half of the season. And they were, you know, hitting home runs, doing bat flips and kind of being the 2022, 2020 pod race. Um, you know, the, the offense was inconsistent, but they were winning some big games and, you know, taking series from the Dodgers. And now they're just really flat and lifeless. And, you know, the trade deadline, I know people are pointing at that. Uh, they failed to get Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. Instead, they watched them go to the Dodgers, those two players. And they didn't get any starting pitching help at the deadline. And just the, the offense has been so inconsistent all season. And now you're seeing kind of the uh, the effects, the I guess mental fatigue of constantly being down in a game because you just don't have enough starting pitching and you have no help from the minors. And, you know, unfortunately for the Padres, they had to pitch Daniel Camarena last night because they, you know, basically had nobody else to come up from AAA. Um, and, you know, they're they're trying to win a game against uh, their most hated rival and it's going back and forth. It's basically a pitcher's duel for 15 or so innings. And, yeah, they, they just give it up at the end because they got nothing left. Um, so I, I don't know. This team can come back from it. You know, technically they're only a game down, you know, as of this recording um, in the wildcard race behind Cincinnati. But at the same time, you just have to consider the evidence of the past two months. This team uh, has been really demoralized by what's happened, you know, not only at the trade deadline, but what's happened all year with the starting pitching. Um, I kind of want to focus on the word you just used, demoralized. I mean, is are the vibes different than what we were seeing in April and May when there seemed to be a, a lot of energy and necklaces and fun and, and some swag, is that still there or have, have you seen that? Um, has that kind of just been muted by the recent play? The vibes are definitely different, not in a good way. Um, there's, you know, I think anybody watching just even casually from the outside can see they're, they're not having fun. Um, it feels like every time they they get a deficit these days, they're they're not the 2020 Padres again. Um, you know who I think had the most comeback wins last season in the majors. You know, be it as a sixty game season. So I think that's always been the danger of uh, trying to extrapolate off twenty twenty when you're only playing I think nine opponents and a much shorter schedule. But they're definitely um, there's definitely a lot less energy in the dugout. Uh, there's a lot more pressure and expectations of the season, obviously, given what they invested in the off season. And they kind of, in, in a way, shot their wad in the off season with uh, how much they traded. And although you could still argue they still could have gotten a back end starter, which would have helped a lot. And I don't know how much that would have helped uh, in hindsight if all these injuries are going to continue. But um, they're they're definitely not the uh, Slam Diego Padres anymore right now, certainly. And they're uh, they're looking like they have a pretty slim shot of making the playoffs. Dennis, the Padres fired Larry Rothschild, their pitching coach, at the start of this week, brought in Ben Fritz to be the new pitching coach, the interim pitching coach. How much of a difference, realistically, is that going to make down the stretch for a team that's had so many starting pitching injuries and didn't get a starter at the deadline? I think the answer to that question is basically uh, what you just kind of um, spelled out there. I mean, it's really not going to be I don't think much of a difference uh, just given what Ben Fritz is walking into um, this, you know, this bullpen has been worked harder than ever recently. And you have to consider that they're already leading the, uh, the majors in innings and in bullpen innings at the time of Rothschild's firing. So 
Uh, he's working with a really exhausted bullpen. Uh, they're hoping, you know, you Darvish and Chris Paddock come back okay for the final stretch run of the season. But realistically, uh, I don't know. I don't know how much uh, late August uh, position change there or coaching change there is going to do, just because. Uh, these guys have just accumulated so much mileage this season and just accumulated so much uh, wear and tear, especially in the bullpen, that it's going to be really hard to turn things around. Uh, I think philosophically, uh, maybe uh, Fritz is you know more aligned with the front office and with uh, Jace Tingler. But at the same time, I think um, you know people can see this was definitely a, kind of a scapegoat issue, even though Jace Tingler said the other day that Larry is definitely not a scapegoat, but uh, when things go this bad, uh, teams sometimes make desperate moves like this. And the Padres, if you flash back to 2017, they, they made a move like this too when they weren't even competing for the playoffs by firing, firing Alan Zinner with a month left in the uh, season, and that really didn't do much for them. So uh, we'll see how this pans out for Ben Fritz. He's very well-liked and respected by all accounts. Pitchers uh, like working with him, and they're already familiar with him, so that's a bonus. But, um, yeah, with a, over, about a – month left in the season. I just don't know how much good it will do. Is there any pressure at this point on the front office? Um, you know, AJ Preller's come in, um, is generally well received, like gets a lot of awards for winning the off season and, and things like that. Um, at the same time, you know, last year's team was the first team in a shortened season with a, with a winning record in a, in a very long time, like nine years or so. Um, and right now there's a chance they don't make the playoffs. If that happens, is there any pressure on A.J. Preller at this point? There definitely is, and there, there should be, uh, given um, how, how long he's had at this point. I know they went through that lengthy, basically roughly five-year rebuild, um, and their process there was really defensible, uh, just you know, uh, methodically adding young talent to the system, and then they – you know, I think a, a lot of us were kind of, you know, writing glowing things about them, unloading a lot of that talent over the last year or so just to build this major league ready team. But right now, if you're looking at um, one of the main jobs of a major league GM and a major league front office player development, they just it just hasn't been there. The lack of impact uh, in the higher levels of season has been glaring, especially when they needed it the most. And uh, they're. No matter what they say, I know Peter Seidler, the owner, said at the Tatis uh, extension press conference in february that you know we're the 10th largest or eighth largest city in america i always get my san diego population mixed up but it, it is a large city um maybe not the biggest media market but uh peter seiler the owner said there's nothing we can't do but if you look at what they try to do at the deadline unloading eric Hosmer, not only because you know he hasn't lived up to their expectations for that contract but because they would like to get below the luxury tax they have a look of a roster that's pretty over levered right now and They've already traded most of their, you know, prospect depth in the minors, and they don't have a lot of, as I see it right now, you know, places to turn. And so the player development, the lack of it has been uh, pretty glaring, especially the past couple of years. And, you know, that falls in the front office. I don't think A.J. Preller himself's in any eminent danger. He signed a contract extension over the offseason through 2026. But if you look below him, um, it'll be pretty remarkable for a GM to get a fourth uh, managerial hire. But, Jace Tingler right now isn't sitting in the best position just because of what transpired this season. And, you know, at some point, if the GM isn't going to go, uh, you know, someone like Larry Rothschild took the fall for it. And I wouldn't be surprised if they missed the playoffs if there's talk about, you know, more coaching change. And you talked about San Diego, you know, being a sizable market. Same time, like, you know, baseball is the biggest team. They don't have a they don't have a football team, right? 
Is that still the case? This is just showing my showing off my huge NFL knowledge here. They lost the Chargers, right? Yeah, in uh, 20, uh, 2017. And they don't have an NBA team. Mm-hmm. So, That's right. So the Padres are, are, are kind of – they have that whole market to themselves. How – like how big a footprint do they have in San Diego? Like, does the whole town basically, does, you know, the whole town revolve around San Diego Padres in terms of sports? Because I mean, I live, you know, in the Chicago media market, and there's two baseball teams, and uh, you know, and uh, those if those baseball teams are in the playoffs, the Bears still take the front page, and you know, there's a lot of competition. I mean, is this town just kind of all Padres all the time at this point? Well, I think Kyle could speak better to this as a native San Diegan, but you know, now in, in the last years, uh, really has become that is because. Like you said, the Padres are only a game in town, and they've actually assembled a very talented, very energetic roster until, you know, recently that people just embraced, especially, you know, last summer when there was nothing to do. People were, you know, in their houses looking for something to watch, and the Padres provided a lot of joy. And I can say, you know, started this year, I've definitely never seen, you know, more Padres jerseys uh, in, a city, in the city than ever. Uh, before in the past, you know, uh, Kyle's been here longer than I have, but uh, it was just uh, pretty striking, I think, transformation of people really embracing this team and saying, you know, this is the only team we've got and we feel really good about our World Series chances. And right now that's looking pretty dire. I mean, I think, you know, honestly, if you step back and look at it objectively, they still have a lot of controllable young talent. They still have, you know, the three starting pitchers, Darvish, uh, Snell, Musgrove going into next year. So their outlook's pretty good still, and we still have Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado. So it's it's pretty good. It's just that the expectations were so high for the first time in seemingly forever, um, you know, since, you know, higher than ever since, I guess, 98. And then, um, you know, this happens this summer. So it's a pretty crushing blow, not only for the franchise, but I guess uh, all the people in the city that kind of jumped on the bandwagon or all the people who'd been watching, you know, forever and then finally felt like they had to chance to be even better than 98 and that just you know hasn't come to fruition so far yeah we talked about the 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 vibe in the clubhouse and kind of the vibe in the in the dugout is the vibe in the stands different as well yeah i think all these answers to your questions have been yes but it's true <laughs> uh you know in in april and may and june and when they were playing the Dodgers and playing them in these really close games and you know, winning these close games, uh, there was a lot of belief that, you know, honestly, people in the organization were saying, I think, you know, we might be better than the Dodgers. Some people are saying we are better than the Dodgers now, um, although the Dodgers did have a lot of injuries back then as well. Uh, but, you know, now it just feels like, you know, when you go to the stadium, when the Padres get down, it feels like they're not going to come back. And mm. uh, that's just the reality when you just don't have enough pitching and your bullpen's worn out and your your offense has been struggling for weeks now. And it feels like the players uh, – you know, kind of have that late 2019 vibe to them when, you know, the season started pretty promisingly, but they just didn't have enough depth in the end. And they kind of collapsed down the stretch and that lost that led to Andy Green losing his job as manager and uh, things had to be overhauled a little bit. But I think at this point, um, you know, fans are hoping or looking toward 2022 and you can feel that when you go to the stadium. Uh, you know, obviously the, the, the team finishes up with the Dodgers tonight. Um, then they have not a, bad road trip with the angels and the diamondbacks but it, it's they still have you know they have three with houston which is tough they have six more with the dodgers they have seven more with the giants or, or i think 10 more with the giants or seven with the giants and I, I mean this is not an easy run for them the rest of the way 
No, not at all. And uh, another thing on top of that is most of these games will be on the road where they've been, uh, you know, squarely under 500 uh, for whatever reason. Uh, they've played much better this season at Petco, uh, maybe because, uh, you know, full crowds have returned and, you know, full crowds are still attending Petco. It's just like a city energy has been very different uh, recently. But, um, you know, on the road, they've been pretty dreadful uh, recently. And then at home now, they're, they're losing too. Uh, so it's not looking good. If you look on paper, this is the uh, toughest remaining schedule. Uh, they kind of kept telling themselves, or kept telling uh, us in the media and the you know fans and public that you know we we seem to play much better against better teams. But if you look back, uh, they were healthier back then in the first half when they were you know pulling off those series against the uh, the Dodgers and Giants, and now they're they're less healthy and they're uh, more worn out. So I don't think that. Uh, that theory is going to hold water if you, uh, you know, play 10 games and expect them to win, you know, seven out of 10 games. Has, have, has the stadium been full in San Diego? It has. Uh, and, you know, that's partially because of the opponent, the Dodgers, uh, you know, Philip have always felt a peckle pretty good. And now the, you know, Dodgers are rolling again and the Padres are plummeting in the playoff picture. Uh, it's kind of gone back to that, you know, 60% Dodgers uh, crowd, just eyeballing it. That might not be true. I think, there's a lot of Potters fans who still just, you know, want to see this team and the talent they still have. But, you know, at this point, it's uh, it's definitely been, like I said, just different energy at Peco Park. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, striking to see just how much of a contrast it is from, uh, say, you know, May and even early June. So, I mean, beyond the kind of cliche answer of they just have to be healthy, um like, what's it going to take for the Padres to get to the postseason this year? Yeah, I think that's really hard to pinpoint because there's been so many things that have led to this collapse. Um, and health is obviously right up there. So I don't think you can really discount that. It, it really falls a lot on you, Darvish, and Chris Paddock um, getting healthy and staying healthy. And being able to pitch every five days down the stretch. Now they do have quite a few off days remaining, so that'll theoretically help. Um, but uh, I think there just needs to be maybe, and this is a cliche too, but maybe just one big series because mm-hmm. that they win because they just haven't had one of those in so long. And even two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whatever it was, when they they won a couple series against Miami and Arizona, those uh, those felt like letdowns because they only took two out of three in each of those series, and I think they were blown out in one of them. So they just get consecutive wins right now. That would be a big thing um, <laughs> just to get that confidence back again because right now this is clearly a team that's lacking confidence on all fronts. Dennis, you mentioned getting consecutive wins and, and building that confidence up. As a team, they're hitting 187 during this stretch where they've lost uh, 11 of 13. That staff that we've talked about has a 5.51 ERA. How realistically can they turn that around, either side of it, the offense or the pitching staff? Objective, objectively speaking, it just doesn't look really realistic right now. If this has been the trend for two-plus months now, I just – feels like um, you're, you're kind of betting on something that's unlikely to happen. Uh, I mean, they clearly have the talent. They clearly still have a lineup. Their offense is actually probably as healthy as it's been all season. It's just uh, for the past two weeks while the, the starting pitching keeps going down the tubes. Um, although I guess you could say Blake Stell's performance last night was obviously really encouraging. Uh, they just seem to be uh, kind of feeding off that negative energy from just not having enough pitching. And uh, it's just this vicious, vicious cycle where they're uh, kind of, 
you know, getting down on themselves when the pitching is uh, just not performing. And even when the pitching is performing, like last night, I mean, you have to credit not only Blake Snell, but the bullpen. The bullpen yeah. went eight, eight plus innings, uh, but the offense wasn't there. So they, just, they haven't synced these two things up all season. Uh, I don't think they have any easy answers for it or else they would have addressed it already. Um, but I think this is more, you know, regardless of whether they make the wild card game or not. And, you know, make, make no mistake that division's obviously out of reach now. Uh, they're going to have to address a lot of things, you know, not only at the major league level, but the uh, you know player development level when the season's over. You know, you talked about how they, they you know, they, their lack of, of guys they can call from AAA has really been exposed. Uh, entering the year, Mackenzie Gore was seen as one of the better pitching prospects in baseball. Um, and then even this spring when people saw him talk to scouts, they'd say, I don't know what's going on here, but something's wrong. Um, he, he looks like a shell of his former self. It's been kind of a lost season for, for Gore, who... Um, you know, recently pitched in Peoria and, and, and looked pretty good, but you know it's late August, and, and there's certainly no reason to count on anything from him this year. Uh, I mean, how much has the the decline and the kind of lost year of Mackenzie Gore ended up really hurting this team? It's been one of the main reasons. There's uh, there's no doubt about that. They were actually at one point, I think, in even maybe late April, they were planning on him coming up uh, pretty shortly from AAA and just to provide some innings and you know get his feet wet and. All along, they've been saying, you know, once he comes up, we want him to stay up. So they were maybe even thinking that he could have come up, you know, before May or before June and could have stuck in the rotation if they if they needed it because of an injury or something like that. But that clearly has not happened. It's been more than a year since, uh, you know, he's really looked right. And that's a pretty bad indictment of the organization. Although I think, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is something they can point to as something mm-hmm. that threw a lot of people off track and, you know, McKenzie's got obviously one of the, one of the most complicated deliveries in uh, in all of baseball. But at the same time, uh, you know, you hear you know the Padres have tried like a hundred different things with him, and not many of them have stuck. And we'll see if this go around. Uh, now that he's pitching against uh, you know live batters against again in uh, you know real games, we'll see if he uh, makes real progress going forward. But um, you know, at the deadline, there was talk about the Padres trading him, and that's just how far his stock has fallen. Uh, he's no longer untouchable, and He's the kind of the guy they were counting on providing that, you know, uh, starting pitching depth at the, se- at the start of the season. And that just hasn't materialized. And you've seen kind of the uh, kinetic effect of that with uh, not only him, but, you know, Blake Snell having a lot of short starts and, you know, other guys getting injured or being in- inconsistent in the rotation. That's really uh, been one of the primary reasons their season has, you know, really sunk. Mm-hmm. With Gore, realistically, what can the Potters expect at this point? Pitchers in particular, development is rarely linear. There's lots of bumps and bruises. Is there a sense there's still that number one upside down the road? Or what are you hearing? And, and overall, what can the Potters and their fans realistically expect to get from him? Forget this year, but just even in future years. The Potters still think he can be a star. Uh, I think if you ask any other organization and Granted, there's been very limited looks at him over the last three months or so just because he's been tucked away uh, at the Furious Sports Complex and only recently, like uh, Kevin mentioned, debuted or re-debuted in the ACL. Um, yeah, no one's no one's really expecting him to uh, to become that start that Padres are hoping for. Um, so it's, it's really hard to say just because of all the lack of game action he's gotten over the last uh, year or two. But I think if they're looking at the immediate future, you're – they're hoping he can, uh, you know, come up in September and maybe provide some innings, um, maybe innings they won't need. Uh, but at the same time, if they really fall out of the playoff race, 
next month. Uh, maybe that is something they consider seriously, but uh, it's still the same mindset that they want him to come up. And whenever he comes up, they want him to stay up. So they just want, they don't, they don't want to yank him back and forth and maybe have another Ryan Weathers situation like they're having right now, where it looks like, you know, Ryan Weathers just needs to be in triple A and he's getting hit so hard up here because he has one and a half pitches. But um, at the same time, they just don't have the roster flexibility and they don't have other options in the minors. So I think, there's an outside shot. Gore surfaces in September and provides some innings, but I think uh, it's just been another transitional year for him, unfortunately, and you're looking more toward 2022 and hoping maybe he can settle in uh, maybe worst-case scenario as a back-end starter, but that just tells you how much you know the expectations have fallen for him when uh, he looked like the best pitching prospect in 2019. Dennis, I, w- I want to thank you for joining us. If you want to read Dennis's work, you head over to The Athletic, if you want to follow Dennis on Twitter, he is at Dennis T. Lynn. And on Thursday, that T stands for tired. Dennis, is there anything else I need to plug? No, I think you got it all. In okay. fact, I'm tired, but I think all of us are after watching that game. <laughs> it, was, it was well worth it. I had a good time. Thanks for coming on, Dennis. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys.
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks again to Dennis Lynn of The Athletic for joining us to talk about the Padres. Um, musical guest this week is Rid of Me, who we played earlier in, in the podcast run. Um, I'm A, I'm thrilled to play Rid of Me again, um, but B, I also screwed up. Um, so had a musical guest lined up, had an email exchange with our musical guest. I said, great, send me some mp3s and them and a bio and we'll, we'll play them i can't wait to play you and I was, that'd be great and then i woke up this morning and said oh shit i never heard from them um and never got and so i didn't have a musical guest i said i'll just replay someone i really like so this is rid of me who i really like um this is, uh heavy melodic noise punk from philadelphia uh members uh previously in fight amp soul glow low dose um they have a new record coming out uh later this year which is coming up soon. And when that happens, I will definitely be playing stuff off that. But this is off of their two previous releases, which are Summer and Broke Shit Demos. Uh, Rid of me, Philadelphia band. They're awesome. Go check them out. You ready for emails, Kyle? Absolutely. Bring them on. First email comes from Dan. Dan says, with the 20 to 80 scale being subjective and somewhat flawed, what does it take to drop an 80 grade on a tool? Does it have to be consistent? Holy fucking shit, I've never seen anything like that before. Or is it like obscenity eye roll and you just know it when you see it? Um, I, so I, I, I put this email because there was a, I had a chat at Fangraphs on Monday and there are lots of 20 to 80 scale questions. And, and my answer kept being that the 2080 to scale, if you are one of those people who lives in a world where kind of rules and adherence are very important to you, the 20 to 80 scale is going to drive you absolutely insane because it's not a perfectly, it's not something that's perfectly adhered to. But it does have a, a, the language of it is understood by the industry. And in my mind, that's enough. I'm, I'm comfortable with the fact that it's not perfectly adhered to. So, you know, if you talk about 80 power, you know, obviously, you know, Rich Raw, like Stanton, Judge, Otani, um, you know, Sano, like those guys have 80 raw and you're comfortable saying 80. At the same time, like, when, you know, when's the last time you heard anyone say somebody was an 80 defensive catcher? I want to say never. Austin you Hedges. Know, I had people tell me Austin Hedges. I, I'm fine. Yeah, and I, I would agree that, but like, it's one of those things where like, you can think of one dude, and 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 I, and it's not universal. And like, I don't know anyone who wouldn't put an eighty on Mike Stanton's power. Mike can't John Carlos Stanton's power. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's 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 not something that is, you know, perfectly spread out. You know, when's the last time you heard someone put an 80 on shortstop defense? Like Andrelton's an 80 defender in my mind, but you know, before that it was maybe Ozzie Smith. Like at times 80s are incredibly rare and protected. And other times you're happy to say it because the guy's just an 80 and, you know, Billy Hamilton's an 80 runner and then, you know, Terrence Gore was and then things like that. Um, so it's not perfectly adhered to. And so sometimes you just know it when you see it. And other times there are a lot of guys like, is there an 80 bat right now in the big leagues? Like, I don't, no, like Tony Gwynn had an 80 bat. Ichiro was an 80 bat. Like an 80 hit tool? I don't know. I saw 70s out there, but how many 80s would you throw out there right now? Right now? None. I don't, I don't, yeah, probably none. I will say a few years ago when Jose Altuve was in his prime. Yeah, yeah, when Jose Altuve was hitting 330, 340. For me, Jose Altuve was an 80 hit. That, you know, 20... 14 to 18 run but for sure and that's what and that's what 80 hit is 80 is you know for most teams everyone has a little different scale most teams 80 is like expected 320 yeah yeah i mean with the 20 to 80 scale at ba we do have some hard numbers like hey at this run time that's an 80 yeah run you know and raw power i have seen a certain distance is an 80. So you can kind of measure it objectively that way, although not all teams use the same numbers. And, you know, 
hit grades too, there's more that goes into it than just batting average, but most teams do have a scale where, hey, a certain number is a certain grade, and that's what it is. So there is some objectivity in that way, but the way I always talk about it is, you know, most places now, um, including us at BA, have 20 to 80 grade tools and all of, uh, at least the top 10 prospects in our prospect handbook. I would say it's important to look at those, but also read the scouting report because there's a lot of nuance in there. There's a lot of, yeah. there's more to it. So I think if you're solely looking at the 20 to 80 number, you're not going to get the complete picture. I think you have to look at that in conjunction with the write-up when you're talking about a prospect. Our next email comes from Froda. I, wa- I hope I'm saying, I hope I'm not ruining your name, Froda, who is co- emailing us from Norway. It's our first Norwegian email. Uh, if you're in Norway and listen to the podcast, please email us. We'd like to have simply just a Norwegian email segment every week. And Froda says, why does MLB have to do their own investigation every time there's an ongoing criminal case against a player? There's already a system in place for issuing punishments called the United States Justice System, right? About 10 years ago, Norway's top cross-country singer, Peter Northug, I'm probably killing as well, drove drunk with a passenger, crashed his car, ran away, and when he caught, he and when caught, he tried to blame it on his friend who was still in the car injured. Total douchebag. Big media case was on the front pages for a long time. He got a couple of months in jail and a big fine, and you know what? Nobody talked about him being penalized from his sport. The reasoning was quite simple. He was punished by the courts. Easy peasy. You can't go skiing when you're locked up. So to emphasize my question, is Major League Baseball constantly meddling in police business because the U.S. judicial system isn't working? Kind regards, Froda in, San, in Sandes, Sandnes, Norway. You ever been to Sandnes, Norway, Kyle? I have not. I've never been in anywhere in Norway, but it's on the list of places I would love to get to. Go to Iceland, by the way, if you've never been there. I can't recommend it enough. Um, this is a fun question. It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, the first thing is, 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 you know, Major League Baseball is a, is a private enterprise. Um, and like any private enterprise, they are going to discipline employees and people associated with that enterprise outside of the justice system. You know, if I did, if I committed a crime, um, Fan graphs could fire me. Uh, you know, if you, if you did something wrong, Kyle, Baseball America might do something about it. Um, and, and they're there to protect their own interests, especially such a public facing thing. Um, and that's why. And the other thing is, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit. We talked about the Angels thing. Um, you know, first of all, your question is, is it because the U.S. judicial system ain't working? The U.S. judicial system does not work. I don't think that's why this is happening. But part of it is because the U.S. judicial system is so incredibly slow. Um, and we talked about how, you know, um, the Tyler Skaggs tragedy took place more than two years ago, um, and the trial scheduled for October. It got pushed back three times, and don't be surprised if it gets pushed back again. It's it's the the the, the wheels of justice turn incredibly slow, and it's something that you know Major League Baseball needs to get in front of, which is why they have the rules they have. Um, but, you know, when you think about you know obviously right now um, the domestic violence cases and, and and Trevor Bauer and things like that. Um, they don't want to necessarily wait for the U.S. justice system to, to do its thing because you could have a player like Trevor Bauer or, or Roberto Asuna or on and on and on playing for literally two or three years before the U.S. justice system does its thing. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. There's, there's not a whole lot to add. Uh, just something that, yeah, like they, again... I don't really have anything to add there. <laughs> and the, 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 the other problem is, of course, just that, you know, these players are multimillionaires and multimillionaires can buy justice. And that's just a fact of the U.S. justice system. 
Um, there's a really fun, we've just started a documentary series uh, called Cocaine Cowboys on Netflix right now about a couple guys who were you know, really kind of the kings of cocaine in Miami in the, in the 80s. And uh, you can see right there that, you know, how much having a ton of money can get you through the justice system in a pretty remarkably great way if you want to. Um, Look at the 2009 financial crisis or 2008 yeah. financial crisis. <laughs> great example. Our last email comes from Matt. Matt says, hi, Kevin. I was wondering how good people like you, well, you're already wrong about that, Matt, who are thoughtful and critical about the morality of the underlying structures of baseball manage participating in the unethical parts of baseball when going to work for a team. For example, during your time with the Astros, how did you think about participating in the draft, even though you know it exists only to suppress player compensation? How did it feel working in a minor league system that pays people criminally low wages? Literally everyone in nearly every line of work at least indirectly participates in unethical systems. But I'm curious if someone like yourself has any special insights or thoughts to share given that it is explicitly part of your job to be critical when you aren't working for a team. Anyways, I want to say that I've been really enjoying the show. Thanks, Matt. And I'm selfishly glad you're back doing public-facing work. Many thanks, Matt. Um, it's a tough question. And, uh, you know, it's... it's you know, I didn't necessarily keep my mouth shut all the time and, and I never really got in trouble for not keeping my mouth shut and I would happily tell everyone the draft was bullshit. At the same time, I had a job of helping to evaluate players for the draft and kind of not, you know, maybe hating the player more than the game at times and, and, and the rules were the rules and you had to work within the rules and I, absolutely. And I was, you know, horrified by what some of the, the our minor league players had to deal with in terms of everything in terms of, of what they're being paid and, and their their housing and even at times their food situation and um and i i hope that gets addressed and it gets addressed soon and you know we've had the people from advocates for the minor leagues on the show and and i hope uh, you know they're they're fighting the good fight and i hope they can uh you know find some continued success with, with what they're doing and you know there are things we need to change but you know like you said um nearly everyone in nearly every line of work at least indirectly participates in unethical systems and and, and that's the sad truth and at times you just have to take it because there's a reality to it and and you know at times you just you know i you, you are working in baseball you're running around watching baseball players and there are unethical parts of it and i don't say look the other way and and maybe speak up when you want to speak up and and feel free to speak up but um you know if you are if you are working for a living, Matt, and, and or if you are a listener to this and you are working for a living, um, you're being exploited. That's just how capitalism works. Like you, you're they're making a profit off of your work. You're not getting what you're worth. If you're getting what you're worth, they wouldn't make a profit off of what you're working. So it's hard to get through it. You have to kind of live through the reality. It's it's you know I think everyone knows what my politics are, but you know you have to you know if if you are like me as a, you know, a leftist or, or a socialist, like you need to nonetheless accept the fact that you're living where you're living and, and function within those systems uh, as best you can. And in a way that hopefully lets you sleep at night, but yeah, there's parts that you don't necessarily look the other way and you don't let it not bother you. And you speak up when you want to speak up and hopefully fight for things that are right. But um, I think this is the case anywhere where you have to kind of deal with the, the bad and, and, and take the good. It's an interesting question. Are you more likely to force change from the inside or the outside? And I, I don't know the yeah. answer to that. And that's that's beyond baseball. That's a lot of different systems. But it, it's it, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing. It's something I think a lot of people struggle with: is do I try and do this from the inside or from the outside? Um, and I, you know, I did try at times from the inside, and 
didn't have a lot of success. And I, I you know, it's, it's, you're fighting a pretty big institution with a, um, a culture of this kind of thing. And it's, it's hard, but, um, don't necessarily have a whole lot of regrets. You know, I, I, I tried my best. Um, but yeah, I, there were lots of aspects of the game that bothered me and lots of aspects of the game that I loved, you know, that I absolutely loved, you know, to be fair. Um, and I stayed there for eight years, so it's not like I walked or anything like that. And, um, you know, you try your best to, to be a good person and, and speak up when, when the time comes right. Um, if you have an email, send it to us. Chinmusic at Fangraphs.com. I promise you I read all of them. Um, and we answer most of them. Um, or at least some. Kyle, it's time to catch up with you. All right, I'm ready. You are... Did I get your position right, by the way? Is it National Writer with Baseball Yeah, America? National Writer. Okay, okay. National Writer of Baseball America. What have you been up to? Busy. Lots and lots and lots going on. Uh, we just had our best tools issue at Baseball America, which is always kind of fun. So for those mm-hmm. who don't know, uh, since I believe 1988... Baseball America has handed out surveys to managers at every level of baseball, American League managers, National League managers, and then the managers at every full season minor league, triple A, double A, low A, high, all of it, and ask them to fill out who they think the best hitters are, the best power hitters, the fastest base runner, best base runner, who has the best fastball, best breaking ball, best changeup, all sorts of categories. And it's always been really fun to see who they come back and answer, Mm -hmm. both at the major league level and at the minor league level. So we just sent our best tools issue to press yesterday. So it should be on newsstands or it should be in subscribers mailboxes, I think within a week or so and on yeah. newsstands shortly after that. Uh, but we started putting some of the stuff up today online, including the survey results for the best tools in the American league and national league. But as part of this, I wrote a Shohei Otani cover feature because for a best tools issue, there's no one in baseball right now with a more insane tools package than Shohei Otani. And we're seeing that come out with full health. And one of the things I did, and it was kind of fun, I I spoke to a lot of scouts, front office officials, uh, looked at some data, kind of a comprehensive look at Shohei Otani and said, what are the tool grades? Because realistically, we're looking at a five tool position player and those are insanely rare. And oh, by the way, a position, a, a pitcher with four plus pitches, right? And just kind of spell that out. That I mean, this guy, that combination in one player, it's not supposed to exist, and yet here he is. And uh, it was really fun digging in on all the tools, and that story is up online today as well. You can check it out. Um, but that was what I was working on a lot, and it's um, the more I, we I, dive I, into it, him, the more incredible he is. He's amazing. I had an interesting conversation with um, with the scouting director last week about Shohei Otani, and, and so I want to ask you this since you talked about his tools. Um, when you talk to people, and also obviously yourself, like like where do you grade Shohei Otani's hit tool? So it's very interesting you ask that because I went into this thinking it was probably more in the 55 range. Mm-hmm. But in speaking with evaluators and front office officials, this was actually unanimous amongst them. And I'm not talking about talking to one or two guys. We put this out to a lot of different people, a lot of different teams with different grading scales who evaluate hitters differently. It was a unanimous plus hit. And there are a couple reasons for that. Um, first, if you just want to go by batting average, I mean, he's been in the 270 range most of the seasons, 30 points higher in league average. You look at some of the underlying stuff, um, it checks out. And then really the two biggest issues that sort of plagued him in the past, he had a pretty big platoon split, especially his rookie year. 
This year, that's mm-hmm. gone. Um, and then he's you know reduced his chase rate, increased his walk rate, and even just the mechanics of the swing. Uh, what came up a bunch is a lot of people think he's rotating better this year. It's a better bat path. So I was actually surprised that it was unanimous that, no, this guy's a plus hitter, and you should put a 60 on it. Hmm. Yeah, we, I, I'm with you. I think it's kind of a 50-55 bat. It's a, you know, it's a 30% strikeout rate, and it kind of plays right. up because, obviously the quality of contact um you know his hits ball so damn hard that that ends up with a lot of hits out of out of his contact um and but yeah we it, it was like we were both just kind of talking about all the all the possible grades you could put on him. it's it's you know obviously you don't argue with the power and the run it's just like what what's the pure hit tool here because he has he does he strikes out a ton he struck out you know 154 times this year right now and in, in less than 500 plate appearances and yeah. And that uh, was what surprised me, and I, I agree. Actually, it was almost like, how can I put a plus hit on a guy with a 30% K rate? And the answer came back that, you know, they felt like he's not chasing as much. He's swinging and missing in the zone more because he's letting it go more. He's just, you know, the swing's better, and he's letting it go a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they feel like the the underlying everything, the ability, is that of a plus hitter. And also the fact he's, you know, mostly been hitting 25 to 30 points higher than the league batting average in their right. minds sort of cemented that. Hmm. And, um, you know, for people who don't know, before I worked in baseball, I worked for Baseball Perspectives. Before I worked for Baseball Perspectives, I worked for Baseball America. Um, so I've, I've done a best tool survey. Uh, I used to do the Midwest League. Um, so, you know, when you talk to people, did did do you find, you know, when you watch players too much and, and, you know, people watch Otani too much, I find when scouts watch players too much and, and you see this in the draft come June, um, they find reasons, they find holes because they, they're looking for them. Um, like, have people found holes in Otani's game? I mean, the biggest one was, was health. I mean, and mm-hmm. he stayed healthy this year. I think realistically... Most of the evaluators were just gushing over the guy. Um, gushing might not be the right word. Marveling at him. And I, I was actually impressed by how much there wasn't any of that, you know, fatigue or, oh, you know, well, he's actually not that good at this. Um, and including some older grizzled executives who tend uh-huh. to be, you know, sometimes on the crankier side or, oh, I've seen it all. I thought the quote that really got me was I talked about his guy you know, 50 plus years in the game and. The full quote he talked about, you know, Bonds and A-Rod and all these guys, Griffey, is like, I- I've never seen this. I have never seen what we're seeing right now. So that was actually part of this is he has turned everyone, you know, players, managers, right. executives into this just like almost like a kid again. Like you're just watching baseball through the eyes of a five-year-old like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, this guy's the – we've never seen anything like this. And people – are appreciating that. And that was partially why I wanted to make sure and do this as part of our best tools uh, survey, even at the, at the all-star game, talking to, you know, Freddie Freeman reigning MVP. I mean, these guys are like, you know, 10 year olds asking for his autograph. I mean, they just are in awe of this guy. And it seems like mm-hmm. everyone around the game is, I think because they know how ridiculously hard this is. If anything, I actually think some of the fans are crankier about him and, and finding holes in his game than players, coaches, and managers. Yeah, it's it's an obvious. I was, I mean, I was dead wrong. I I really thought it was. Um, I thought he should do one or the other. I didn't think he could. I didn't think this was sustainable. Like, you can't do both for an entire year. I didn't think it was sustainable, and I just 
I was just wrong. Um, and you, you weren't alone. So one of the fun things about my time at BA was when Otani was coming over, my editor, JJ Cooper, essentially made me the Shohei Otani guy. So I <laughs> wrote a big article. I, I dove in. I actually did a big article where I spoke to a lot of ex-big leaguers in, who are currently in Japan who have faced him. Dennis Farte, Stefan Romero, Brent Morrell, all these guys. Yeah. did a big article about, hey, you know, is this guy for real? What do you see? And they, the general consensus was either he's going to be an ace pitcher, and there might be double-digit home runs in there, but it's not going to be, you know, an everyday caliber bat. It's more, you know, great pitcher with some power. Yeah. And Dennis, Dennis Safarte, who has played against him the longest and knew him the best, his words were he can be – and give Dennis credit. He saw how much offensive talent was in here when not a lot of other people did. But even he said – I think he could win a Cy Young Award. I think he could go 40-40, but he's going to have to pick one. Right. And that was the consensus. And I came out of that winter after talking to ex-players and scouts and international directors. My thought was he was going to be an ace pitcher. What I was concerned about with the bat was one of the things that came up is Japanese pitchers never pitched him inside because they didn't want to be the guy who broke Shohei Otani's right elbow and ruined his career. Mm. And Dennis Safarte had talked about a lot of the American pitchers busted him inside and had a lot of success against him. So my thought was once he gets over here, the velo inside is going to give him some trouble. When he can get his arms extended, he'll hit some home runs. But, you know, asking him to be an everyday caliber hitter, I don't know because I think he's just going to get busted inside. And to his credit, and, and we underestimate just how quickly this guy can adjust, and, and some of that's his athleticism, which is insane. He dropped the leg kick in 2018 spring training, brought in the toe tap, and all of a sudden, inside Velo wasn't a problem anymore. I actually remember the specific moment where I was like, oh, he's got this. It was uh, in Kansas City. Brandon Maurer threw him a 97-mile-an-hour fastball high and tight, up and in, and Otani turned on it and laced it for a triple into the right center gap. And I was like, oh, there was the hole, and it's not there anymore. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, this is this is starting to get talked about, and and I think it's a fascinating discussion, really, in the sense that you know Shohei Otani is signed through twenty twenty two. He'll make five point five million dollars in twenty twenty two. He will get an arbitration year um, in twenty twenty three, and then be a free agent. First of all, his arbitration is going to be bizarre. Um, Extremely, as as just, <laughs> extremely. Yeah, you know, it's it's obviously the most unique, unprecedented arbitration of all time. And, and I talked to one person inside the game who said, you know, if I was if I was his agent, I would just I would have a hitter presentation and a number and a pitching presentation and a number and say you need to add these two together. Um, but you know, as a free agent, it, it, let's assume because it's more fun this way. Let's assume that he stays healthy and continues to be. Um, Shohei Otani continues to, you know, through 2023, continues to be a guy who um, can hit 40 home runs and be a star level starting pitcher, good for, let's say, 150 innings a year. Um, does that break the bank in free agency? He'll only be 28. It's going to be something crazy. Um, again, talk about who he is as a player and also the marketability for. The Asian well, market in Japan, and it's a huge boon to whatever team signs him. It's unbelievable. Yes, absolutely. It, it, that, it, that those teams get broadcast there, they become like the uh, they become the team of Japan if they have the big stars and things like that. But um, you, know, you live in Southern California, you go to a lot of Angels games. If like 
I wasn't surprised that Shoyatani ended up on a coast. I think that's what everyone expected who was involved. Um, I was surprised he went to the Angels. What do you think? And I know it's not something he really talks a lot about, um, but like, what do you think his comfort level there is? And do you think like he wants to stay an angel or he wants to be a free agent? Or is at least looking, or at least looking forward to free agency? He's extremely comfortable in Anaheim. I saw him interact with guys in the clubhouse pre COVID, so 2018, 2019. Uh, I was very fortunate. I actually got to do a one-on-one interview with him for Baseball America after the 2018 season where we named him our Rookie of the Year and got to talk to him a little about there. And he's extremely comfortable. So there's a couple of things. Southern California has a huge Asian population. Sure. Um, And there's a lot of comforts of home in Southern California for him. And that's something that has absolutely helped with the transition and made him happy and satisfied. On top of that, you know, having guys in the clubhouse like a Mike Trout and a lot of other guys who have been, you know, big names, um, personable, they, they've welcomed him in. We've seen him have a lot of fun with them. He's, you know, there's him singing on the bus and you watch him interacting in the clubhouse. And even this year you see it. He's he's smiling. He's laughing. He's, you know, being demonstrative in positive ways on the mound. Yeah, there, there's really no question he is happy in Anaheim. Like any player, you know, he wants to go to the playoffs, and there's right. all sorts of discussions about whether or not the Angels can accomplish that. But on the whole, yes. Um, at the same time, does that mean come free agency? If some team offers him a huge amount of money and the Angels don't match, does he stay in Anaheim? I, I don't know. That's something that's going to be determined down the road, and he's going to have to talk about his agent. And, you know, the situation today could be very different than the situation in two or three years. So. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of factors there, but the general question of is he happy in Anaheim, by all accounts, the answer is yeah. And, and what else are you working on? Yeah, so that was uh, the big thing I just got off my plate, and uh, I'm currently working on now a Bryce Harper feature. Uh, I feel like a lot of people have kind of missed it, but this is Harper's 10th Major League season. It's kind of a it's big amazing. milestone. And you look at just how hyped this guy was coming up. I mean, it was unreal. I was, you know, I was still in college at the time. I wasn't in the industry by any means. And as such, my focus was on major league baseball prospects and the draft was a very casual interest at the time. And even I was like, gosh, this guy, you know, sounds amazing. He's everywhere. And he was a 17 year old in junior college. And so, yeah, just kind of doing a story, a big feature on, where is he at 10 years into his career? Has he lived up to the hype? You know, how how do you assess Bryce Harper's career to this point? And it's kind of a fascinating discussion because, I mean, you look at the performance, it's been great. And he's been one of the better players in baseball this decade. And yet he almost seems like underrated an now. Right. Yeah. He almost seems underrated now. Like people don't realize how good he is. And it's kind of crazy considering how much he was on the forefront of everyone's mind when he was first drafted and when he was coming up and when he made his major league debut back in 2012. And he's currently having his um, the best year of his career minus the the 2015 MVP campaign. It's the best season he's had since then, and it's you know it's not one that gets a lot of attention because he doesn't have like gaudy you know RBI numbers things like that. But in terms of pure you know averages and, and how they rank against the rest of the league, he's having the best year he's had since 2015. Um, you know, he's only 28. He's got over 250 home runs. I. It, it's it, it would be almost impossible for him to live up to the hype un, unless he was like doing what Mike Trout does. Um, but like this guy's one of the best players in baseball. There's no question about it. And 
Um, like, the, what was the focus of the piece? Like, what did you find? You know, how do, how do you evaluate Bryce Harper's? I, I'm just shocked when you said ten years. I was like, that can't be true, but it's true. Like, where? How did you end up? Like, you know, like I guess what side of the fence did you end up on in terms of, of evaluating his career a decade in? So do I tease and say, wait till the story comes out? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, realistically, you know, pulling up the numbers, he's been, you know, top 10 in most offensive categories among players with at least a thousand games played this decade. Um, has he been number one or two or three? No, but he's been consistently, you know, five, six, seven, one of the top seven or so hitters in Major League Baseball since he debuted. And talking to people who play against him, talking to managers who manage against him, talking to players on his team that he used to play against and he's now teammates with, they're like, yeah, he's lived up to the hype. This is a guy that when he steps in the box, you know he's in there. You are very, very, very careful to pitch. It's a scary, yeah, it's a scariest AB that you got to face that night. And, and oh, by the way, I mean, he's also been a pretty good defender. He's got a good arm. He's, he's stolen 12 bases. This I was about to say, he still runs very well. I mean, this is something where this guy really has been one of the 10 best players in Major League Baseball since he debuted by, you know, statistical measures, by anecdotal measures. And just because he's not number one, you know, does that make him a disappointment? For me, the answer is no. I actually explored this. I did a piece on Steven Strasburg a few years ago at his uh, the 10-year anniversary of his being drafted. And, of course, that year he went on to win World Series MVP. And it's this weird thing of if they're not the singular best player, and they were supposed to be, but they're still one of the five to seven best, are they a disappointment? For me, the answer is heck no. If you're one of the top five to ten people in anything in Major League Baseball, you're a success, period. And if other people's expectations were out of whack with reality, that's their problem. Do you think, in, in a way, his 2015 season where he won the MVP as a 22-year-old with a season that was head and shoulders above the rest of the league, you know, he led the National League in on base and slugging. I mean, this is – he had an 11.09 OPS. He had a 4.60 on base and a 6.49 slugging. And and do you feel like, you know, doing that 22 and and as amazing as that year is and impossible to imagine, like never coming, coming close to that again has kind of played a role in, in him going from the most hype guy in the world to kind of underrated? I think so, especially when he followed that next year up with really what was his worst year, uh, right. 243. You know, the on-base was still good, but the slug was 440. It was, it was a 114 ops plus, which, again, still like pretty solid. But, yeah, I think definitely doing that made people think, oh, you know, it's just a one-time fluke and almost missed the fact that he bounced back the next year, had a really good year. Uh, it was a shortened season. And then a couple years after that, he, he's been pretty good. I think also part of it is – the Nationals winning the World Series the first year after he left, I think, has made people dismiss how good he is. And again, I don't know how fair that is to him. The Nationals were able to fill a lot of holes they needed to fill with the savings they had by not signing Bryce Harper. You know, springing mm-hmm. in a couple catchers, starting pitcher. That doesn't mean Bryce Harper was bad. That just means the Nationals were able to fill in some holes and, and maybe become a more complete team than they were. Um, but, yeah, I do think that his follow-up to the 2015 season and then the fact that the Nationals won the World Series the first year he wasn't there has kind of played into this, like, oh, yeah, you know, he's he's fine, but he's nothing special. And it's like, no, actually, he is pretty freaking special. Did you talk to Bryce at all? 
<clears throat> excuse me, I did. I had a one-on-one -on -one with him in San Diego, and you know, I've spoken with him before. Um, How do you, know, you find him? I'm glad you asked that. So I need to start with the caveat. Um, I think people who might have covered him, first of all, people who covered him every single day, especially in his early years, are probably going to have had a very different experience than I've had. So that, you know, Chelsea. So you're James, saying he's a you're saying he's a different person at 28 than he was at 19. How can that be possible? Well, well, and that's the thing. I <laughs> you know because I didn't know him myself at 19 to 23, and I know a lot of times outside perceptions of people at age 19 to 23 are, in, are inaccurate. I don't know if he's a different person. The first time I spoke to Bryce Harper in a professional capacity one on one was 2017 when he was still 24. I've spoken to him since. Uh, you know, press conferences, big group settings, and this was my, my second one-on-one -on -one with him. I have always found him to be actually, the first time I was shocked because of his reputation, just really nice, super down-to-earth, very grateful. He you know, thanks me for the interviews, like sincerely, um, willing to talk about anything, You know, very, very, very eager to give credit to his teammates, the people around him who have helped him, mm -hmm. um, doesn't traffic in cliches. I've actually, to be honest, I found Bryce Harper to be one of the most enjoyable players to interview, um, just just as a person and his story. And you know, for all the talk about some of the things you know he was early in his career, I, I'd also talked to his signing scout Mitch Sokol, who pointed out it's like. This guy's never been in trouble. I mean, how many big leaguers right. do we find out, oh, you know, there's this or that, or the other thing, whether it's criminal trouble or, you know, moral ethical trouble, guys cheating on their wives or, or whatever. Bryce has, like, been a stand-up human being, you know, in terms of just his, his off-the-field behavior from the outset, from a very young age. And there's a lot of child star types out there who can't say that. So... Um, I have always found Bryce to be nothing but pleasant. Again, I didn't speak to him until 2017, so I can't speak to what he might have been like 2012 to 2016. Right, and I'm sure right. the relationship was different with the everyday beat writers versus someone who drops in for an interview once or twice. Those guys are going to see him more and have a more complete picture. But just my individual experiences have always been pleasant. And um, you, know, you were a beat writer, and now you're not. Now you do the national writing thing and, and you know, a lot of features and things like that. Um, do you like that better? <sighs> That's a loaded question. Um, it is a loaded question. So I asked it. I think there are times where, yes, where you don't feel like you're stuck to one team's schedule dictating right. your life and you don't feel like you have to be at the ballpark, you know, every night. It's a better um, lifestyle. Right. You, you know, you're filing depending on your deadlines, but you know, you're there most nights, 11, after 11, you know, you're, you're working a three to midnight schedule, um, every night and it, it, it becomes a grind. And, and for a lot of people, um, they, they choose to leave it because it, it becomes something that just isn't sustainable and then they miss their families and it becomes difficult. So I think that moving into a national role is nice in the sense of there's just a little more freedom and flexibility. I can go out and cover X games and be there, you know, late until midnight or whatever, but I don't have to be, I can pick and choose a little bit what mm -hmm. stories I want to write. Where and I you also, I think you have a, a, a wider, I always like wonder or I even feel sorry for in late August for, you know, like Nikki P with the D-backs or, or Sahadev covering the Cubs and, and people like that. Like, what are you coming up with? Like, what do you got? You know, it, the team's bad and boring. Like, what, what you know, and you, you, you gotta, you gotta feed the beast and 
come up with something every day in, in your role, you can still focus on what's interesting. Yeah, although I will say sometimes it's kind of fun to cover the rebuilding team because there's some interesting stories about guys coming up or guys mm-hmm. getting playing time. I think really the worst is when that team's in the middle, when they're like 78 wins because they're not playing the young guys. But the Yeah, and I think the Cubs are kind of like really unique just because like, you know, obviously they dumped and, and they're really, but they don't have prospects up. Like they're, you know, looking at Patrick Wisdom and Mark, Michael Hermosillo and Rafael Ortega. You know, it's such a weird situation there that I, it's, I, I, it makes me wonder exactly what they got going. Yeah, so I think from that perspective, you know, having that, that freedom a little bit to, to write about a number of topics, you know, have a, a more flexible schedule is certainly beneficial. But at the same time, I do miss, you know, being on a beat every day, you know, mm-hmm. focusing on one. Because sometimes from a national perspective, you feel like you have to know everything and your head is spinning and then you miss something. And it's it can be a lot of times. And um, I think my the way I'm wired is very much if I'm somewhere I, I want to write and you know it's a little more of a beat writer mentality sometimes where I'm, I'm writing stuff that is maybe more daily but I find interesting and uh, so I think it's it's like anything else in life there's pluses and minuses to to both roles um, and and I, I will say that there are definitely times I miss aspects of being a beat writer and there's other times where I'm grateful I'm in a national role. Right, right. Um, anything else coming up you can talk about? Uh, what do we got? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's a busy time at Baseball America. We've got a lot of great stuff. Uh, the best tools issue is always a ton of fun, and that's something that I really encourage everyone to go pick up. After that, we've got our, our minor league top tens where we rank the, the top ten prospects in every minor league. And mm-hmm. that's always fun because that's where you f- get some guys that might not be mainstream yet. Yeah, but for sure. They made a real impression in the league and the managers and the scouts. Like, hey, watch this guy. And it's not just the lower level guys. I mean, I remember Jared Walsh and Jake Cronenworth when they really popped. It was in AAA, and yeah. that was when you get them onto league top tens, and they both became all stars. So, do you get, I assume you have the Cal League for that. Uh, yeah, so I typically do the Cal League and the PCL, uh, just okay. being out here on the West because I, I, I'm in touch. A lot of the scouts have the same coverage, a lot of Cal League and PCL, and right. um, it's easy enough for me to pop out to Vegas and see some guys. So, yeah, those are the two leagues I have, and we'll also have our minor league all-star teams and the big one, our minor league player of the year, which is always fun to pick. Um, that's coming up here, I believe next issue uh, might be the one after but yeah so it's the the end of the season of uh, the minor leagues is always a lot of fun for us pick our all minor league teams and then uh, after that the end of the major league season major league player of the year all major league teams it's it's kind of awards and ranking season it's kind of the start of that which i know a lot of people love and it's a lot of fun for us i remember i have to throw this aside in there Uh, i think it was last year someone on twitter who i i don't he wasn't affiliated with us i don't really know him some other place said, you know, rankings are the easiest thing to do and the laziest thing to do, and it's all subjective. And the rankings are seriously the most labor-intensive thing that we do. I write 2,000-plus yeah. word magazine features. I cover games live on deadline. I, I do a whole bunch of things. Nothing is as labor-intensive or work-intensive as our rankings. Um, so it's a busy time for us. But it's a lot of fun, and, and I encourage everyone to check it out and subscribe now if you're not a subscriber because it's, it's a fun time of year. Ranking season is, is stressful because it's a ton of work, but it's also a lot of fun. Yeah, so they're, they're, they are a truckload of work. And, and, you know, if you do it right, and, and I know you do, um, and, you know, I 
got me you know, the first rankings I ever did and kind of learned the the basic mechanics of it was at VA under under Jim Callis and um so are, are, once the playoffs start will you be traveling uh TBD I typically hang around here in Southern California until the World Series um, yeah. but some of this again we have to see what games are being played who's where 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 the best stories are um but yeah, I mean, generally, yeah, there's there's travel involved. It's just kind of TBD what it is. I do want to ask you about your time at BA because it's like this weird thing clouded in mystery that you were there, but then you left. And so when were you actually there and what were you – because I, I hear about you in this like almost like legend terms. Like you were, you were, you were there. You were you know this phantom who blew through and then gone. Like So when I got started, people started calling me KG2 just because the same initials as you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And – I didn't know you were at BA because so my familiarity with you was from BP. I think our very first interaction was actually my first job. I was covering the High Desert Mavericks for the Victorville Daily Press. Nice. And I remember there was a a twenty two nothing game. Visalia led High Desert twenty two to nothing in the fifth inning because it's High Desert. And I think you tweeted at me or asked me what was going on, and I told you, well, it's, the wind's blowing up thirty degrees. Um, or thirty miles an hour, excuse me, because yeah, High Desert. It was arena baseball. Yeah. But um, that was my first interaction with you. And then when I got to BA, people started saying KG2. I'm like, who's the first KG? Like Kevin Goldstein. I was like, wait, he was at BA? And yeah, like I said, there's like this like mythical aspect of your time at BA. So like, what did you do there and how long were you there? I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to answer that because I just like the fact that I didn't know this, that I have a mythical aspect. There. I, I kind of want to, I don't want to step behind the curtain. I want to keep it that way. Um, so I, year, I'm bad with years. Um I think I went to BP like in 07 or 08, maybe, um, maybe 06. Um, so, uh, I built the first baseballamerica.com. Um, gotcha. before I was in baseball, I did tech consulting. Um, and a lot of that tech consulting was interactive stuff. And a lot of that was, um, building websites for companies. Um, and I, me and 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 a, a very small company that that I ran with a, just a few other people um, built the first baseballamerica.com the, the the old green and yellow if you're very old and remember that one um, and I built that and uh, eventually um, over some time uh, baseball America brought me on to run it um, cause they didn't really have anyone who could run a website so I was running a website and you know getting all the articles up and maintaining all the content and built a, a like a draft database and things like that and um, and uh, and then started I was doing the prospect report and then started doing a little bit of writing here and there and some prospect rankings here and there and then in whatever 06 or 07 Nate Silver called me and said you know they're looking at a prospect guy at BP and that was a you know a chance to I, I, you know, I wasn't going to move to Durham. I love Durham, but I was going to move there. And, and I, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of upward opportunity there. And, and this was a chance to go somewhere and run things. And then I jumped at it. And the rest is history. Um, so, yeah, I was there for, I want to say, four years, four or five. Wow, that long. Okay, for whatever reason in the lore, it's like, like you were there. And then, you know, again, it was like. Let's keep it that way. I, okay. I like the mythical aspect of my time at yeah. Baseball America. Yeah, um, they, yeah, it's almost like this like forgotten chapter because I feel like you're so associated with BP. It's like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, he was at BA too. And again, I I didn't know that until I joined BA. Uh, they hired me in 2016. Yeah, May mm-hmm. 2016 is when John Manuel uh, uh, and Will Lingo hired me. John drove that hire. So yeah, no, it's uh, it was just kind of an interesting thing to learn. And it's, it's always been, you know, every now and then you get a glimpse, you know, JJ will mention something about it briefly. Ben Bather will mention something about it briefly. And like, 
then that's it. And it, <laughs> don't know how to take that. And that's it. We don't talk about well, it. Well, no, 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 no. Nothing <laughs> negative. But it's like, oh yeah, well, well, it's like, oh yeah, when Kevin worked here, just dropping as an aside. I was like, wait, he worked here. I'm like, yeah, you know, he was here. And then move on to the next topic. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. yeah when when I went there, it was like John, John Manuel, and Willingo were like the co editors in chief. John's now with the Twins. Will's doing something in Durham. I can't remember what. Something cool. I think with the UNC. Um, yeah, and they, they were running it. It was still, I mean, for a long time, still in, in you know, out of that that house. I'm, I'm sure you've heard about the BA house. Um, and yeah, no, I was there early. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, when I joined, we were in, uh, we, you know, off regular office and then, you know, kind of by the Research Triangle Park. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I heard a lot of stories about, you know, some of the, the smaller places. Was, was the house? It was in downtown, right? Kind of, yeah. A little off the beaten path, but yeah. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's there, yeah. There's some there's some cool stories about BA's humble beginnings. You know, starting in a, in the garage of the founder, and then yeah, point, uh, Al, Alan up, Simpson belongs in the Hall of Fame, folks. Yes, yes, uh, he was a finalist actually uh, this yeah. past year for uh, for the for the Spink Award. He didn't get it, but we are all very very hopeful. Um, you know, anytime you you see how much prospect coverage is out there today and, and college baseball coverage that didn't exist before Alan Simpson started. Right. BA. Alan, Alan about, Simpson invented prospect coverage. Alan Simpson invented draft coverage. Yeah. And, and Period. the contribution to the game, the interest that has driven in the game today, uh, there's no question. He belongs in the hall of fame. And I, I sincerely hope that the people who make that decision uh, will put him in the Hall of Fame because I, I can think of very few writers who have fundamentally changed the nature of the way baseball is consumed like Alan Simpson has. For sure. Um, it's time for a moment of culture, Kyle. All right. Hit me. What you got? I'm going to talk about a movie that is uh, a little bit in the zeitgeist, uh, at least uh, especially in kind of the indie world. It is uh, on Amazon Prime and it is called Annette. Have you heard about the film Annette? I have not. So Annette's kind of the... It, the hot thing. It's a very unique film. Um, it is. It stars Adam Driver's your big star, um, and it is a. It's directed by a guy named Leos Carrex, who's done some interesting indie films, very uh, visually stunning. And this is, first of all, it's a musical, which is shocking enough. It is a surreal musical. Um, Adam Driver playing kind of a. Um, kind of an antagonistic stand-up comedian. You know, one of those guys who kind of, you know, berates his audience kind of aggressive. And he is gets married to a lovely, very peaceful opera singer. They have a very strange baby. Um, all of the music is by Sparks, um, who had just had a great documentary about them. They've been in the music industry forever. Um, and it is this, like, surreal, visually, at times stunning, incredibly interesting visually, like, very inventive, very creative musical about you know this couple they have a baby that's a very unique baby that the baby's name's Annette um that has a quite the gift and um and it's 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 a downer of a story in the end um and I can't tell you how much I wanted to like this movie Kyle like incredibly inventive and interesting and unique and and you know things that never been done before and it was like one of those it's like it was like a great idea poorly executed Mm. The Those best are heartbreaking. Two, the best two scenes in the movie are the opening scene and the secret little thing that happens in the credits. Yeah, that's always tough when when you can see that they had a good idea and just couldn't execute it or didn't know it's, where to go it's, with it's it. Exactly, it was both. They didn't really. They also didn't know where to go with it. It's, it's two hours and twenty minutes long, and it is my. 
and I don't mind long movies at all. Like I, I think, you know, I can think of movies that are three hours long that don't have a single wasted scene in them. But this one was too like this one. Like I felt like there was a much crisper, like hour and 40 version of this film. Um, it's just a, it's, 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 it's strange and at times wonderful. And I'm, it's one of those movies where I'm glad I saw it and I don't feel like I need to see it again, nor want to. Um, and it was just very disappointing. Are you more of a serious movie watcher or a, you know, laid back, you know, watch more comedies and, and lighter fare? Because the way I kind of consume media, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, it's just the way I kind of do things. I tend to, you know, movies and TV shows, I tend to stick to lighter fare and I read really serious books. Like I just mm. finished, I just finished Midnight in Chernobyl, which is about the Chernobyl disaster and goes into absolutely incredible detail. Um, you know, my wife teases me because, you know, she's reading... You know, she'll read you know a fun summer book, whatever, and she's like, "What are you reading?" And when we first started dating, I was reading uh, *The Orphan Master's Son*, which is about North Korea and a lot about North Korean gulags and the political system there. And she always is like, "Yeah, you read the like darkest, most serious books," <laughs> um, you know. And then I jump into a Civil War book, and you know, most recent prior to *Midnight in Chernobyl*, I read *Black Edge*, you know, Stephen Cohen, and uh, before that, uh, *Billion Dollar Whale*. Um, both books don't make you think that you know oh i should act ethically with money it's like no people that didn't act ethically with money and they ended up mostly getting away with it um right but yeah so i tend to read very serious stuff and then what i consume again tv and movies i, I tend to stick to the lighter fare um tv i'm lighter fare like i mean look i and we've been talked about this show on the podcast quite a bit and been shocked at how many people that have come on as guests and our co-hosts who also watch this like I still watch like Love Island UK every night, like that, <laughs> like that light. And it's, and, and can't, and it, every night we finish our evening watching the next episode of Love Island UK on Hulu. Um, and TV tends to be like movies. I don't want to say serious cause we watch a lot of comedies. I, I guess, I guess the one thing I would say we don't watch um, maybe at all is Hollywood stuff. Um, okay. You go more indie, like underground more type indie, stuff. Indie, far and lots of stuff on Criterion. And there's, there's definitely interesting stuff on even, you know, even Hulu's had a lot of, interesting indie stuff lately and and you know some stuff on netflix and but like when i open up hbo max i almost never want to see any of those movies um i have no interest whatsoever in, in like comic book superhero stuff i none none um it's it not just, my genre either but i've seen them right it just feels like you know it, i think of like when we go to the theater and we see a a, a a preview before the main event of one of those movies like the joke that margaret and i had my wife and i have is like leaning each other go that movie looks really loud, you know, cause that's all I know, you know, and it's all you got. It's, it's so like, so, you know, certainly sometimes serious stuff, sometimes not. And you talked about this as well. Like, you know, during, you know, the 18 months of hell we've been in, you know, in the last 18 months, there are certainly times where it's like, you know what? I hear this is a really good film about life in a San Paolo ghetto. And I don't think I can do that right now. And I'm going to find, like a pre like a pre-code 1930s black and white slapstick comedy you know and there are times when you need that my um, version of that is i'm just gonna watch a film where people blow shit up like let's watch godzilla let's watch yeah. you know armageddon let's watch you know deep impact let's you know 2012 let's just you know sit, oh the whole world's been destroyed you know cheap action okay cool like that's my like right yeah you know and again that's that's like as serious as, not as serious as it gets obviously i watch serious movies and have seen them but when i'm just casually 
hey, it's Friday night and it's the off season and I'm not at a game or covering a game or watching a game. Like, what are we throwing on? It's 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 mostly that lighter fare. And hey, I will watch Armageddon over and over and over. I know it's cheesy and awful in so many ways, but <laughs> I, I think the scenes, you know, where the asteroids hit and they blow up the cities, I, I don't know. I think they're actually kind of cool in, in a weird, cheesy way. Um, so what do you got? What do I got in terms of life? In Books, terms of a movies? moment of culture. Yeah, I mean, I think just kind of circling back to, uh, you know, getting serious now after talking about Armageddon, but, uh, <laughs> Min, you know, Midnight in Chernobyl is the book I just finished up. And, I mean, it, it really is an incredible book. I encourage everyone to read it. Um, you know, there's so much. I feel like, so I was born after the Chernobyl disaster. and What year was that? Uh, 1986. Okay. And I actually major in history in college, not journalism. And a lot of my concentration was 20th century Eastern Europe. A lot of, lot, lot of war and genocide. Um, and the Chernobyl disaster was discussed. But, you know, I, I just felt like growing up, it was a lot of, you know, this happened, then there was a cloud, and they cleaned it up, and, you know, it helped cause the fall of the Soviet Union. Like, people were very brief about it. And even in college, it was kind of like that. And then the series Chernobyl came out and on HBO Go, uh, I believe it was two years ago. Yeah. And they good. went into so much more detail than I never, ever knew. And I was someone who like studied this time period and studied these regions. And, right. um, this book goes even deeper and it talks about, you know, nuclear accidents that happened both inside the Soviet Union and in other countries, including in Great Britain, which I never heard about or read about that happened before and were, Sellafield, you know, kind of covered right? up. Sorry? What was that one? Sellafield? I don't remember off the top of my head. It was a very long book and he talked about it in the beginning, so I forget yeah. what it was called off the head. Um, but, you know, talked just a lot. And A, I learned a lot about nuclear physics. Um, but B, just talking about it, I think what really stands out is, you know, I think especially in the 80s and earlier, it's, you know, Americans, you know, we're good. The Soviets are evil, godless communists. And um, you read a lot about, obviously, the horrors that happened and how much the government was at fault and, you know, just, just everything that, that did go wrong and, and was wrong and people that needed to be held accountable. But you learn a lot about the heroism of individuals and what they, what they did to help their colleagues or get their colleagues out and the collective sacrifices they all made. And, um, I really came away from it. Just, you know, my mind was blown about a, you know, just so many things, the mechanics of it all, but also, at its core, it's about the people. And mm -hmm. I thought it was an incredibly well-written book where you really feel for the people who died. A lot of books, I feel like sometimes they say so-and-so died and you almost just kind of read it and move on to the next page. Um, I, I really highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in, in you know, What's history. What's it called again? Uh, Midnight in Chernobyl. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I know we're kind of finishing on like a down note. Let's talk about a nuclear disaster that led to, you know, thousands of deaths. But... Um, yeah, again, just a really, really good book and something that um, I think is, is useful uh, to read and understand how it happened and, you know, just things to kind of make sure we don't forget in the dustbin of history. On that note, I think we're done here, Kyle. <laughs> Sorry, do we need to finish on a happier <laughs> note? Uh, I've got a five-month-old daughter who is currently... Yay! Yeah, she's uh, currently giggling and uh, she just discovered her feet. So she is, uh, you know, her feet are reaching up. She's reaching out and grabbing them with her hands and putting them in her mouth. Everything's going into the mouth at this age. So uh, there, we're finishing on a, on a cute fuzzy note. <laughs>
Sorry, I had to finish on that. <laughs> Understood. Uh, Kyle, I want to thank you for, for wasting an afternoon with me. Um, anytime. Happy anytime. And if you want to uh, read Kyle's stuff, of course, you go to BaseballAmerica.com. Um, obviously, also a great place to uh, subscribe. Kyle, if people want to follow you on the Twitter machine, where do they go? At Kyle A. Glazer. I had to put the middle initial there. Apparently, there are other Kyle Glazers out there. Irish really? First name. Yeah. I, I didn't think so. Irish first name with a Germanic last name, but... Oh, believe me, there's more, there's more than one Kevin Goldstein Irish first name with a Jewish last name. Yeah, so, um, yeah, at Kyle A. Glazer, and as you mentioned, BaseballAmerica.com, and, you know, we still have the print product, Baseball America, the magazine cups out every month. It's something we're very, very proud of, and, uh, again, I think the next issue, it went to press yesterday, should be on subscribers' doorsteps or in their mailbox next week, and newsstands the week after that, so... Um, it's a great time to subscribe. Like I said, we've got a ton of stuff coming out and the best tools issue is always a really, really fun one and one I always recommend people check out. Great. Well, again, thanks to Kyle for co-hosting this week. Thanks to everybody for listening to the show. 